1: You experience a conversation or are asked a question that has the potential to be life-changing. That is precisely what may have occurred to me on Sunday. Sunday, we were over my mother-in-law's for my brother-in-law Adam's 30th birthday, and his uh, palm is blinking red, just like the, the movie Logan's Run. And uh you know, a bunch of us are st- standing around sitting around and uh, people are talking about food and desserts and fruits and things of that nature. And my co-brother-in-law, Simka, the uh, husband of my sister-in-law Deborah, he uh, we were talking about bananas, and he says to me, "How do you eat a banana out of the blue?" And it's funny, when he said that, I answered honestly. And I'm about to answer you, honestly. But when he said that, I remembered it triggered something. And I remembered reading something or hearing something over the years that the way I've been opening a banana and unpeeling it was wrong. Lo and behold, Simca tells me that he opens a banana not from the stem side, which is what I've done my whole life in all candor. But from the other side, and then other people are jump, jumping in. I think even uh, my sister in law, Deborah, says, Yeah, if you look at what monkeys do in the wild, they use the stem as a handle. Sure enough, I go and do a whole bunch of research about the proper way and the most efficient way to peel a banana. The way I've always done it is to just take it from the stem and break it open. Mm. Well, evidently, to peel a banana like a pro, you should really be doing it like the monkeys do. You hold the banana stem side down and pinch the top firmly with your fingertips until it tears. And then you pull back on the peel... And presto, a ready-to-eat banana is revealed. And the still intact stem creates a nice little handle, and there's no fumbling or prompting to get the last little bit out because I have noticed that's a problem. And sometimes, believe it or not, it stops me from having a banana because when you open it from the stem first, how do you get that little last bit of banana while still holding it? You need almost a third hand or something. It just—it happens just as easily and even more naturally. Even better, what they call the monkey method of peeling from the non-stem end means those nasty, stringy bits are a thing of the past, which I've also always had a little bit of a problem with. So I have stolen a banana which is believed to belong to Curtis Slewa. It was found in the studio, which Curtis is now claiming in a very Putin-esque manner as his office.
0: Hey, still not.
1: So I have a banana in my hand. And there is a very real possibility. Now... uh, I may not because, look, bananas are a healthy food. They have a lot of potassium, but it's also, you know, however many calories. And I'm not sure if I – I'm not really hungry. So I don't really want to force myself to eat a banana uh, when I'm not really hungry. But if I get hungry over the course of the next four hours, I will be eating this banana and peeling it not from the stem side. But from the other side. I am curious if you have ever done this or ever engaged. In this sort of banana peeling. Give me a call. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Speaking of Putin, though, we have an action-packed show coming up in about 10 minutes. Colonel Douglas McGregor will be here. He's one of my favorite military analysts to talk to. Also, one of our, our most controversial, not only because of his views and his history, but because of the way that he expresses them. He's a retired U.S. Army colonel. He is a real warrior. He's been decorated. He would have been a general long ago if he were not so outspoken. Former senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense, a fellow with the American Conservative, and uh, he was President Trump's nominee to be ambassador to Germany. So we're going to get into that. I'm going to ask him not about not only about the Russia Ukraine situation, but where we are with China. A lot of people wondering what the national security implications are of this balloon that we shot down. A lot of people also wondering what we do if the if uh, China goes forward with an invasion of Taiwan. I'm going to ask him about that. Our number two, Bill Burns, a fan favorite. I will once again. You know, I, I didn't even ask him if he minds staying for a whole hour. I'm just assuming and hoping that he'll stay for a whole hour. If he can't stay for a whole hour, I understand. I have other, I have plenty of other things to talk about, believe me. But this is a New York Times best-selling author, a man who's written about history. He also wrote a great book called The Day After Roswell. He has sort of become one of our go-to experts on the issue of UFOs. And I was listening to General David Petraeus on the Cats at Night show last night, and he said that a lot of the UFO sightings that people have seen over the years might be these Chinese balloons. So I'm going to ask him if indeed that's the case and what this means going forward. Sunday is the Super Bowl, which is not just a big sporting event, but it is the Super Bowl of sports betting. So when we do the AC report in hour three, we're going to talk with David Danzis of Play and a man who has an encyclopedic knowledge of gambling in general, but especially sports gambling. And then in our fourth hour, we're going to talk with Brian Kilmeade, get his thoughts on uh, the news of the day, including the reaction to President Biden's State of the Union address yesterday. Love to talk bananas with you, though. In the meantime, 800-848-9222. I also must um, make a retraction. For some reason, I have some sort of a, a mental block. Several times over the course of this program, including once again last night, I have referred to my sister Claudia as being an alumnus of George Washington University. Well, I I don't know what it is. I was at her graduation. I, not only was I at her graduation, they, they did like a a ball, a kind of a, a prom for a, a the graduating seniors and their families the day before her graduation. She did not go to George Washington University. But for, for some reason... I keep saying it. She went to Georgetown. It was the first question my wife asked me when I got home yesterday morning. She said, What school did your sister go to? I said, George Washington. She said, No, she didn't. She went to Georgetown. Why do you keep saying George Washington? She said, You don't mention the school that you went to that often. You never mention the school that I went to. You don't mention the school that either of your brothers went to. But for some reason, you always find a way to mention that your sister went to George Washington when she didn't. So I guarantee you what's going to happen here. If I ever run for office or anything like that, people are going to be pulling these tapes of uh, me saying that my sister went to George Washington and saying I'm a George Santos-style serial liar. I am not. If anything, I am just losing my mind.
4: Why don't you just apologize?
1: So I apologize To my sister, Claudia, because evidently George Washington is ranked number 62 in terms of schools and Georgetown is ranked number 22. So it is a little bit of an insult. That's right, Frank. Very quickly, very quickly, Jose, talk to me about bananas.
5: Hey, Frank. For years I've been monkeying around opening the banana by the stem until I found that the monkey way is the best way to open a banana. And it's Get every part of the banana,
1: and it's working out well for you.
5: Yes, it's working excellent. For well,
1: <laughs> I I am holding Curtis's banana right now, and I am going to join your ranks starting today, and hopefully we we'll we're going to change some minds today, Jose. Yep. Hey, tell Curtis if he has an extra one for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send it over. We'll FedEx it to you. Thank you, Jose. Colonel Douglas McGregor, straight ahead.
2: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Fighting soldiers from the
3: sky, fearless men who jump and die. Men who mean
2: just what they say, the brave men of the Green Beret.
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. My next guest is not only someone I admire greatly, but he also destroys the preconceived notion that so many of us have about the accuracy of cliches. You see, the old cliche goes something along the lines of because there's certain thinking that uh, when it comes to people that are good fighters, they're not necessarily the brightest bulbs in the drawer or whatever bulbs come in. Because uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor is the definition of a warrior scholar. He is a retired U.S. Army colonel. He is a former senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense. He's an author. He's a senior fellow at the American Conservative. Somewhere along the line, he managed to find the time to go and get a Ph.D. He's been an advisor to military officers and military officials all over the world and he has been kind enough to not only share his wisdom with us over the years but he's been one of the few military voices that's respected who is willing to sing a different tune from what those in the military industrial complex would sing especially when it comes to foreign policy colonel it's great to talk with you again thanks for joining me on the radio sure frank uh, let me begin with the issue that's on everybody's mind this week, which is the issue of this uh, Chinese spy balloon. Uh, there seems to be pretty broad consensus that it was the right thing to do to shoot down this balloon. Uh, do you share that view, that this was the right move?
6: I think it's a, a sort of a tragic and pathetic in many ways. The Chinese have 300 satellites that orbit the planet Of those, almost a third have military application. And most of these military satellites are also involved in intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. The notion that the Chinese would use a balloon that, quite frankly, is too small to carry a significant payload in order to find out about something inside the United States is ludicrous. Right now, they can do with their satellites exactly what Paris can do. They can read the names on gravestones. Uh, they can actually uh, tune in and listen to people's private meetings in boardrooms and bedrooms. So there's no real requirement for them to use something like uh, a weather balloon masquerading as some sort of spy capability. It's just it's just silly. And I think that this is the sort of thing that has been developed as a distraction from reality.
1: I mean, it sounds like, you know, there was President Trump who said the balloon should have been shot down immediately, and he was echoed by a lot of leading Republican voices on national security. And then there's President Biden and the Democrats that say, yeah, it was over our airspace. We want to shoot it down, but we want to wait till it's over the water and uh, the debris can't go and uh, hurt anybody or anything. It sounds like you don't think maybe, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like maybe it wasn't worth shooting down at all.
6: Well, you've uh, heard of the Russia hoax. This is kind of the Republican version uh, of a China hoax.
1: Mm.
6: No, the balloon's irrelevant. Uh, And those weather balloons are all over the world, used by many, many countries. And they're involved in atmospheric sampling. They're involved in tracking winds, currents, all sorts of things. But they're not a threat. And again, anything of any real significance that is of interest to the Chinese They have the capability to collect that information without relying on a silly balloon. And there's something else to this. Why aren't people upset about the open border? I mean, if you're looking for a large uh, Chinese intelligence operation, all you have to do is look at the Mexico City. I mean, they have stations in the Caribbean, stations in Africa, many places. But the Chinese are ideally positioned in Mexico. to monitor virtually anything that happens in the United States. And since we have an open border, they've sent thousands of Chinese citizens over the border. Uh, We don't know anything about them. We don't know where they are. Uh, We just let them in. And I'd be much more concerned about those people, uh, where they are operating, where they live. Are they near nuclear power stations? Are they near military installations? And by the way, what are their connections to the drug cartels? Because we know the drug cartels are plugged into global finance. Uh, they they use the Mexican government as a legitimate facade in order to effectively launder their money, reinvest it, repurpose it. The Chinese have a role in that. Uh, why are we not concerned about those things? Instead, for some for some particular reason, we're exercised over this ridiculous weather balloon. <laughs>
1: It's uh, it's difficult to argue with you when you put it that way, sir. Talking with Colonel Douglas McGregor, a retired U.S. Army colonel, former senior advisor to the secretary of defense, uh, a man who was nominated uh, by President Trump to be the ambassador to Germany. (coughs) Uh, Colonel, given what you said that this balloon was not a national security threat, and that's something that the Pentagon has said, it's something that the uh, president, uh, that uh, the Biden administration has said, it's not something that the Republicans are disputing. Was it the right move for Secretary of State Tony Blinken? to cancel the talks with with China. He was scheduled to go to Beijing to have some talks with the Chinese at a time when tensions are very, very high between both countries. Was it the right move to scrap those talks?
6: Well, probably not. But again, I'm not sure the Chinese were particularly interested in anything that Mr. Blinken has to say. His previous meetings have been an utter disaster because he, like everyone else in the administration, and frankly, like most people in Washington, have this view of their moral supremacy that places them in a position of judgment over everyone else. And so you open your discussions with the Chinese or the Russians or anybody else by immediately castigating them and defaming them and showing complete ignorance and understanding of their interests, let alone their country's culture and so forth. So I'm not sure Blinken would have done anything of value in any case. We might even be better off if he stayed home.
1: What do you see at this point, given sort of the unique codependence that China and the United States have on one another, but the escalating tensions on the other side of the ledger? What do you see as the future, short term and long term, of U.S. Sino relations? Where are we heading with this relationship with China?
6: Well, in the near term, people need to understand that when Mr. Xi wakes up every morning, the first thing on his mind is not the United States or anything that we're doing. Uh, Mr. Xi is effectively the contemporary equivalent of a Chinese emperor. And everybody keeps talking about the Communist Party of China. Well, there are no communists in China. They went away 30 years ago. This is just a ruling elite. It continues to refer to itself as the Communist Party. But there have been discussions in that country for the last 10 years about changing the name to the Confucian Party. Mm. Because effectively, that's what China is. It's a Confucian civilization and state. Mr. Xi has been appointed emperor for all intents and purposes because there's great fear of internal problems in China, bringing the government down, essentially destroying stability. We forget that there are probably three or four versions of the United States in relative size and economic influence that that exist inside China, holding that country together, $1.4 is the number one priority every day. And that means that you've got to protect the population, clothe, support, sustain, feed the population, uh, shelter the population. Mm. That's an enormous challenge. That's number one. When you look at their military capabilities, those have been developed largely to prevent others from interfering with them. Uh, The Chinese aren't massing armies on anybody's borders. They're not interested in invading anybody's territory. Uh, We call them predatory Uh, financiers and uh, and economic predators and so forth. Well, that's what we are. (laughs) We've been that for for over 100 years or more. Uh, So I think that's a lot of nonsense. But the problem for us right now is that the Chinese, the Russians, together with all the BRICS and increasingly large numbers of countries in the world, including India, uh, are looking at ways to de-dollarize, effectively to stop using the global reserve currency. Now, that's a very dangerous development. I wouldn't expect that to change dramatically overnight, but that's a very dangerous signal because our reserve currency really confers enormous power and influence on us. And unfortunately, we've abused that. We've bullied other countries. We've dictated to countries in Latin America and in Africa what crops they will grow and what they will not grow. Uh, we have threatened people with the use of our financial system, who for some reason or other are trading with people we don't like. And and this is finally coming home to roost. And unfortunately, the, the crisis with Ukraine and Russia has simply thrown all of this into sharp relief. So our position in the world is weakened dramatically over the last 12 months. And I think we're going to see it weaken more and more in the months ahead, because we are, we are suddenly seen as this malignant force in the world that is responsible for corruption and violence, we're no longer viewed as this mag- magnanimous engine of prosperity, which is what we once were. Mm.
1: Yeah, it's a sad situation uh, if that's the case. Uh, wh- I want to pick your brain a little bit on the Russia-Ukraine situation, but just one last question on the Chinese front. Uh, one, yeah. of the, one of the things that a lot of people have raised is the prospect of a, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. And every time this is brought up with President Biden, he seems to say one thing and the officials within his administration say quite another. And they say, oh, that's not what President Biden meant. And then he keeps saying uh, that very same thing. How should the United States react if there is a Chinese invasion of Taiwan?
6: We should stay completely out of it. First of all, there are two political parties on Taiwan. Historically, one is pro-Japanese. That happens to be the party that is currently in power, but is not going to last much longer. That is the party that we tend to support because they're the ones that have talked about independence. There's the other KMT, which is Chiang Kai-shek's old party, and they are very much for unification with China. However, they want unification on terms that allow Taiwan to continue to do business and thrive. And the Chinese in Beijing have made it very clear that they're willing to talk about that and come to some sort of arrangement. Mm. Uh, I think after the events of the last 12 months, there's a very high probability that the KMT will come to power. And you could actually see uh, the government, in fact, hold a referendum and vote itself into China. People in the United States don't understand what is going on over there. They have this utterly ridiculous picture of, You know, millions of Chinese troops and aircraft and ships just waiting to charge across. It's absurd. The last thing China wants in Asia is a war. No one in Asia, Japanese, Chinese, Korean, Vietnamese, take your pick. No one in Asia is talking about a war. The only people in Asia who talk about a war are Americans. That's (laughs) That's <laughs> it is, the problem.
1: It is interesting the way that works. Uh, I know, we, obviously, you were very fond of President Trump. He seemed to be pretty fond of you. Obviously, I alluded to the fact that not only were you a senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense in his administration, but he also uh, attempted to make you the ambassador to Germany. There was an article in Politico this week. Headline, Trump's 24 game plan, be the dove among Hawks, And then it talks about how with two of his former top foreign policy aides potentially jumping into the race, Trump's team is making early moves to define the debate. And essentially what this Politico article is saying is that with Mike Pompeo potentially in the race and Nikki Haley and Mike Pence and maybe even John Bolton, that uh, Donald Trump is going to position himself as the as the peace candidate. Do you think that's likely and do you think that'll be effective in a Republican primary?
6: Well, keep in mind that all of the people that you mentioned, except Donald Trump, are effectively indistinguishable from the people in the Biden administration. Mm -hmm. They're part of the uh, bipartisan swamp. Sometimes we call it the uniparty. Uh, They may pretend to demonstrate some sort of interest in the American people, its national identity, the rule of law, the security of its borders, its interests, the repatriation of industries, but in truth... They're not interested. They're owned and operated by donors. Everything in Washington is owned and operated by donors. What we usually say about these kinds of people in Ukraine and Russia is we call them oligarchs. Well, that's what, we're, that's what owns Washington, D.C. Ralph Nader years ago told everybody that Washington was occupied territory. He's right. Only now it's occupied not just by corporate interests and foreign lobbies. It's occupied by oligarchs. Who have bought everything up. So Donald Trump is the only one that you mentioned who's not owned by the oligarchy. He's an independent actor. And he also knows something else. The last thing the American people need at this point in our history is a war. Eisenhower said it very well. The American people deserve solvency and security, both of them. We should be able to have both. We are not solvent. Uh, Our economy is not strong. The underlying fundamentals are terrible. And Donald Trump knew that when he became president. He was working tirelessly to rectify that situation. But there was only so much that he could do because he was in enemy territory. He had no support from anybody. Everybody was opposed to him because he was disrupting the money flows. Well, he's still an outsider, and he's the only one who understands that we don't need any more wars anywhere least of all against powers like China and Russia, who can destroy us.
1: Does President Trump, though, bear some responsibility for appointing all of the people that I just mentioned, Pompeo, Haley, Bolton, Pence, etc.?
6: Yes, he does. But we have to keep something in in mind, that uh, Donald Trump was someone who came to Washington and came to the office with almost no practical political experience and no real understanding of how dramatically things had changed in Washington. I mean, Donald Trump grew up in the 50s, just as I did, and, and the early 60s. And I remember at one point talking to to him, and, you know, we talked about what were the kinds of things you used to watch or read and so forth. And it's the same stuff. And there was, a, there was a program I loved as a young boy in the 1950s. It was called The Men of West Point. I mean, you can still go onto YouTube and find some episodes. What a, what a marvelous, marvelous uh, program that was. I loved it. And all I wanted to do was to go to West Point. I wanted to be one of those West Point cadets. <laughs> and that was a different world. It was disciplined. It was all male. People had no qualms about who and what they were. There were no discussions about transgender. There were no discussions about are you really an American or are you a hyphenated something else? It was a very different world, and that world changed. And when he got to Washington, he mistook large numbers of generals who walked around with silver stars on their shoulders for George Patton, (laughs) uh, Ike Eisenhower, Douglas MacArthur. These people were nothing compared to those individuals, and they had not risen uh, as a result of any battlefield performance or any substantive contribution They were bureaucrats in uniform who learned how to advance on the basis of how well they made their bosses happy. And uh, they're very politicized. And and it took him a long time to come to terms with the facade is there, but there's nothing behind it. Uh, And, And that's what happened.
1: Let's talk Ukraine. You know, it's funny when Ukraine is covered in the Western media, it seems like there are two directly contradictory messages which are hammered home. The first being, Ukraine is winning the war. Ukraine is doing better than expected. Ukraine has a different victory every day. Putin's running scared. The <laughs> Russians are running scared. And then almost in the next breath, you hear, oh, but Ukraine needs this. Uh, they First, they need uh, defensive weapons. Then they need $100 billion in American funding. Then they need tanks. Then they need fighter jets. And I, I must be the only one. One sitting there scratching my head and saying well wait a minute why are we told on the one hand that Ukraine is winning this war and on the other that it's absolutely essential that we sp- send all this armament and treasure from the American taxpayer at a time when Americans can't even get milk or insulin over to the Ukrainians. Based on your perspective and what you're seeing how is the war in Ukraine actually going?
6: Well, Frank, uh, on 24 February of last year, when the Russians intervened in southeastern and eastern Ukraine, they went in with a relatively small force. Uh, They had instructions not to destroy property and to avoid unnecessary casualties. And they thought that they were finally signaling after many, after really two decades of trying to tell people that they would not tolerate a NATO presence on their border, that they were serious and that they wanted equal rights before the law for Russians inside Ukraine who were being treated abominably and still are. Uh, And they wanted help from the United States and Europe to address these issues. Well, they thought when they went in, "Well, well, we'll signal our seriousness. We'll show them how serious we are. And we concluded, look at the Russians. They're weak. There was no shock at all. They didn't have massive air and missile attacks to destroy everything in sight. They did not overrun the place with armor. They've moved very cautiously in small penny packets. The Russians are incompetent. They don't know what they're doing. They're idiots. Well, you can't have it both ways. You can't say those things about the Russians and then turn around and say, the Russians pose a serious threat to Europe and are armed to the teeth to invade Europe. It's, It's the same sort of nonsense. There were no Ukrainian victories. Ukrainians were losing from the day the Russians entered. The Ukrainians have been losing disproportionately to the Russians because of superior firepower on the Russian side. Now, today, there are roughly 700,000 Russian troops surrounding Ukraine, either in the south, in parts of it, or in the north, in Belarus. Of that number, about 500, 550,000 are prepared to enter Ukraine. And of that number, about 300,000 are combat troops, as I was. Those are the people that actually go in in and at point-blank range, kill the enemy. That force is ready. It's going to go in. And when it does, it's going to annihilate what's left of the Ukrainian army. The Ukrainian army has been bled to death. They're down about 190,000 effectives. Oh, sure, they've got 200,000, 300,000 other functionaries running around in uniform, but they're not trained. And they're losing people every day. The most recent uh, Count saw is uh, something in the neighborhood of uh, 1,900 casualties a day, 6,000 dead in the month of January, perhaps 6,500. They weren't sure. Ukrainians have taken horrendous casualties. The Russians have not. And that's because the Russians can fire 60,000 artillery rounds, rockets and missiles every day. And the Ukrainians can barely manage to fire 15 to 20,000 back. In fact. Right now, I'm being told it's dropped down to about 10,000. 75% of all the Ukrainian casualties are from strikes, from artillery, air, rockets, and missiles. This thing is over, and it's going to be ugly, because what's going to happen is we're going to see a cleanup, and there's no amount of equipment that we can send that's going to change anything. And the 10, 20, 30,000 foreigners in Ukrainian uniform are not going to make a difference. They, too, are going to be killed in what's coming.
1: Uh, we're even seeing in especially the British media people and, and the German media as well, uh, high level current and former defense and uh, foreign policy officials saying that they should even entertain the prospect of boots on the ground, NATO boots on the ground to help Ukraine in this conflict against Russia. Do you see a realistic possibility that this could lead to a nuclear uh, conflict with the United States and Russia.
6: No. Uh, The Russians have made it very clear that unless they are attacked with a nuclear weapon, they will not use nuclear weapons. We understand the consequences for the use of a nuclear weapon. We do not enjoy superiority in the nuclear arsenal over the Russians. We're not going to do that. So there will be no nuclear exchange. As far as the officers talking about boots on the ground, I'm I, you're shocking me because the German generals that I know, retired and active, have all said absolutely not, out of the question. The Germans have ammunition for two days of warfare. The notion of of going there and fighting is absurd. There are even Polish generals, active and retired, who probably have said the same thing. But the only ones that I'm aware of who who are on the lunatic fringe to talk about this are of course are of course the British. And the British Army now is substantially smaller than the Marine Corps. I think it's probably 70,000 troops. Uh, They have almost no ammunition for more than a day or two. They have very little uh, substantial armor, artillery. They're not prepared to deal with any of this. So I guess that's why the British are talking about it, because I suppose they figure they're far enough away, nobody will ever expect them to show up anyway. (laughs) The French absolutely said, this is absurd, a French general that I served with is a good friend, he said, Douglas, the only thing the French army's prepared to do is go on safari in North Africa. All of these armies have been structured for this low intensity conflict nonsense. So you don't have armies that are ready to fight on the scale that we're seeing in Ukraine. And remember that we trained the Ukrainians, we organized them, we equipped them, we gave them the best we had. And what's happened to them? They've been smashed. So much for Russian weakness.
1: We're talking with uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor, retired Army colonel, also the author of the book Margin of Victory, Five Battles That uh, Change the Face of Modern War. It's available on Amazon. Uh, uh, colonel, a lot of folks will uh, say that, and look, I, I think obviously we know each other long enough that you know that I am sort of coming from the same place that you are on this, albeit without your expertise and without your experience. But – a lot of, just to play devil's advocate, a lot of folks are saying that the rush that this invasion of Ukraine led to Finland and Sweden seeking to join NATO and leading to even greater NATO expansion is evidence of the fact that the NATO alliance works, that Russia would not dare attack a NATO country. And it makes sense uh, because countries are trying to be a part of NATO so that they're not the next target that's eaten by Russia. Is that sound reasoning?
6: Well, Russia never had any interest in attacking NATO anyway. I mean, that was very clear to me when I was in Moscow in 2001. And uh, it was clear to me all through the 90s when I worked with the Russians. And it was clear to me in the, in the few instances in which I interacted with them over the last 20 years. Uh, there was no interest. And frankly, they hadn't spent any money uh, on the army. I mean, frankly... We've already given the Ukraine Ukrainians more equipment and in, infused them with more cash than is spent on the Russian army in a year. So that, that was always complete and utter nonsense. As far as the Swedes and the uh, Finns are concerned, I think the elites there are, are part of this globalist neocon cabal that uh, meets routinely in the World Economic Forum to transform the world into some sort of society of, of internationalists that they dream of. Uh, these people are out of touch with reality. There was never any danger to Finland. And the Finns, once you once you dig down deeper in Finland and in Sweden, you begin to find people that are saying, wait a minute, is this really necessary? What what does this mean? And most of them will figure it out means they're going to have to spend a lot of money on defense which they haven't had to spend in the past. Uh, I think the opposite is the case. If you go back to this conference that was just held on the twentieth of January at Rammstein in Germany where they had representatives from dozens of nations, all the NATO states. And Austin, the Secretary of Defense, said point blank to them, look, the time's running out. Our window of opportunity is closing. We've got to help these people. We've got to get this stuff to them or it's going to be too late. And you know what kind of a response they got? It was terrible. People said, oh, yes, we'll send this, we'll send that. What are we finding out right now? The tanks aren't showing up. Mm-hmm. The equipment's not showing up. People in the Czech Republic and Slovakia and Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia said, "Wait a minute! You know the Ukrainians are probably going to be annihilated. What does that leave us? What kind of artillery and, and tanks and aircraft do we have?" Everybody's backing off because this thing is going nowhere. And ultimately, I think we're going to see NATO go out of business. I think uh, Germany is going to is going to walk out of the camp. It's going to take another 6, 12 months before they sort themselves out, but the Germans are not interested in going to war with Russia. They correctly judged there was no threat from Russia, which is why they were taking the uh, natural gas that they were getting from the Russians and and using it to great success because it was cheap, it was available, it was quick, and it was fueling the German scientific industrial base, which is the real engine of prosperity in Europe. Uh, I think if anybody thinks that that NATO is in good shape, they're delusional. But then again, I don't blame them because they're not getting the truth through the media. I mean, the lies that pour out of the mouths of the people in the mainstream media in the West are astonishing. It's just, it's beyond belief. When you ask them, well, what do you know about Ukraine? What do you know about what was going on in that country? What's been happening there for the last decade? Nobody
7: knows. Nobody
6: knows that we installed a government there. Nobody knows that we've manipulated that place and turned it into a platform for attack against Russia. And by the way, you know, they talk about how horrible Russia is. If you look at the quote unquote Zelensky regime, it compares favorably with Stalin. Uh, The Russians are far more democratic in treating their own people and others infinitely better than Zelensky and his henchmen. But there's no knowledge of that here.
1: uh, That's for sure. I'm already out of time, but I have to ask you two final questions very quickly. One is it was reported this week that the former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett indicated that uh, both Putin and Zelensky were willing at the beginning of this conflict to try and come up with a negotiated settlement. But according to the prime minister, the former prime minister, he said that NATO decided that it was necessary to continue continue to smash Putin and not negotiate. Why would NATO take that tact if the two uh, countries in conflict with one another were willing to come up with a negotiated settlement?
6: Uh, First of all, Naftali Bennett is telling the truth, except for one point. NATO is irrelevant. Washington makes the decisions. Washington treats the, the countries of Western Europe and Eastern Europe essentially as vassal states. They don't pay any attention to what those people say or what those people want. Never have. Everything is decided in Washington. And uh, we shouldn't be terribly surprised. Mr. Macron is somebody that was selected and groomed and installed in office thanks, t- for the most part, to George Soros. George Soros is frequently mentioned as the shadow national security advisor in the White House these days. And Mr. Zelensky also owes a great deal to George Soros, along with other oligarchs, for his position. So I think I think there's something else happening here. We're talking about a class of bureaucrats and politicians who share the same sort of attitudes, but it's really Washington, D.C., and whoever is behind President Biden. And again, I, I urge people to go back and look at the oligarchs that stand behind his White House and his party. Those are the people driving this, this train. Those are the people that are forcing this war. The average American doesn't know anything about it. And, and frankly, why should he or her? They don't care about this sort of thing. So why is this happening? And it's tragic. It really is, because we, here are two people, two groups of people, Ukrainians and Russians, or whatever their differences are. They didn't have to go to war. And Ukraine is destroyed. The nation is finished. And that, that burden rests firmly on our shoulders. We, we drove this into existence. It's horrible. It's a It's an atrocity.
1: Uh, that's for sure. A lot of lives lost, a lot of people forced to flee their homes, and uh, you wonder what it was all for. Final question, sir. Whenever I uh, say something different from what the conventional foreign policy wisdom in the country is right now on the uh, on the Russian front and say uh, we should not give a blank check to Zelensky and the Ukrainians to fight back against Putin, immediately uh, the comparisons begin of— uh, Vladimir Putin to Adolf Hitler and of people like me, people like you to Neville Chamberlain. Now, you don't sound like Chamberlain to me, but why is that analogy? Because I'm, sh- I'm trying to preempt the callers as they call in about them in about a minute. Uh, why is that analogy flawed? Putin as Hitler, Doug McGregor as Chamberlain. Well,
6: this is the uh, popular narrative that was spun out on, in every intervention. And you have to look at the people their intellectual backgrounds, their their origins. Who who are these individuals that turn Saddam Hussein into Adolf Hitler, who turn anybody that they don't particularly care for into Hitler? Who are these people that are trying to tell everybody it's 1936 again and we have to become active in the world to prevent all these terrible things from happening? Ask yourself that question. Who are these individuals? Bolton is certainly one of them. But there are large numbers of them that live here in Washington, and they absolutely cling to this narrative because this has been the way Americans have been misled. I mean, if you tell Americans, if we don't do something right now, within six weeks, uh, we could have a Pearl Harbor. We have to attack China right now, because if we don't, we could have another Pearl Harbor. You're going to get a response out of the American people. It's understandable. That's an emotional thing. But it's also a huge lie. You have the same thing going on with Putin and anybody else they don't like. Uh, But Americans have got to grow up, and they have to understand that we don't live in the 1930s. There is no national socialist movement, and frankly, communism, except for this country, where I think we have a revival going on in some ways, is largely dead. Uh, Putin is not a revanchist communist trying to rebuild the Soviet Union. He was he's always accused of saying it was a great tragedy when it fell apart. Actually, what he said was anybody who wasn't sad when it fell apart has no heart. Anybody that wants to bring it back has no brain. That's Putin. Colonel, we're going to have to we're we're uh, not dealing with any of that, that sort of nonsense. People have just got to sober up, think for themselves and ask the hard questions. What is at stake for the Americans in Ukraine?
1: we're going to have to get end an it there. Answer to that. Uh, Colonel, thank okay. you so much as always. It's always a treat. Thanks for staying up late with us. Sure, thank you. If, if you want to comment on any portion of my conversation with Colonel Douglas McGregor, you're welcome to give me a call 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead.
2: The other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
1: Michael Ragusa birthday selection, his birthday was on February 7th, but there's still some people celebrating it, so there you have it, 800-848-9222, if you want to comment on my uh, discussion with um, Colonel Douglas McGregor, I had a lot that I was going to say here, but I I see people are already... Lining up to uh, comment. I'll tell you, this is why I love having Colonel McGregor on. He's provocative, and he always gets a reaction. Uh, By the way, I want to encourage you, if you have not yet done so, please join our Facebook group. You can go to facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. Uh, The young man whose birthday it was yesterday, or the previous day, Jeffrey, there's a video that his mom, Jody, posted of him hearing his birthday shout-out. It's a lot of fun. And uh, thankfully, I I don't know where all the people in the group must have been on vacation because no one was attacking this poor 13-year-old kid, which is very uncharacteristic of about a half-dozen members of the group. The same cannot be said for me, which I have no problem with. You know, it's funny, both in the Facebook group and the Facebook page, People pick on me. And then some of the nice people, they get upset. And I always have to tell the nice people, don't get upset. Because if someone doesn't like me and they're still taking the time to listen to all four hours of the show, which clearly they are, they know everything I'm doing wrong. That is all the more reason that we should want them listening. Because it's easy if you like me to listen to this show. But if you can't stand me and can't stand what I'm doing, then to listen and suffer through this show is a real challenge. So we we don't want to beat them up. I'm certainly not going to beat them up. I thank them for listening. So if you want to be part of the conversation about the show itself, you can go to facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. And if you go to my main Facebook page... Um, Facebook.com slash Morano fan. Uh, There is an article that uh, one publication did about the uh, upcoming interview with William Shatner that I'm doing tomorrow and Saturday. And there's an interview that I did with another publication basically talking about radio and talking about uh, kind of how my day goes. You can see both of those things at Facebook.com slash Morano fan. All right. Let me say hello to Marianne in Queens. Hello, Marianne.
8: Good morning, Frank. Morning. Um, listen, I sometimes I do not agree with some issues that you bring. How but dare you. this time, yes, but let me tell you. I have to congratulate you. Why? Because the only one that I hear and bringing people to tell the truth about what's going on in Ukraine and Russia is you. I have to congratulate you. Well, and thank I, you,
1: Marianne. I,
9: And I have yes, you are awesome.
1: I never did call and the like country say, Ukrainian. But...
8: Sometimes I disagree with you, but well, good. it's That's a very okay. important issue. I and agree. You are just you are just in the money. Let me tell you, I wish that this program is transmitted during the day, where more people listen to you, because we need the truth. And believe me, Frank, I feel so proud of you. Oh, well, that's awfully nice, Mary. Thank you. Yes, you you definitely, let me tell you, you are a true American.
1: Well, I appreciate that. I am an
8: American citizen, too. But I recognize when someone is really a patriot.
7: And again,
8: trump Trump is something in the past, but I believe that we need him.
1: Thank you, Marianne. I I appreciate the call. I want to try and get to some other people. And by the way, I'm happy to have all perspectives on. Obviously, you've heard we've had a lot of people other than Colonel McGregor on, and we have a lot of perspectives that I don't agree with. I I try to have everyone on the show who's interesting, Uh, but uh, certainly when there are views that aren't getting heard in the rest of the mainstream media – then I want to showcase those views even more, even if they happen to be a little wacky. Now I happen to agree with much of what Colonel McGregor says there. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Let me say hello to John and Freehold. Hello, John.
10: Hey Frank. Yeah, I was going to say I have to agree
11: with the Colonel too. It's funny. I spoke to uh, when the war started. I think I called. Uh, I called in the Curtis, and uh, I started bad mouthing Zelensky. And he uh, he threw me off the call for doing that. But a lot of people in the beginning thought, uh, you know, we should have been in, we were supposed to go into Ukraine. And it it was a bad country. It was corrupt. There was no reason for us to be there. And I worked out the math. If uh, the $100 billion we sent them, if they just gave it to us, the people of the United States, the taxpayers, we all would have gotten a nice check for $2,800. Or
1: maybe people could afford insulin or milk. Thank you, John. I appreciate that. Uh, Bill Burns joins me straight ahead. Keep asking questions. This
2: is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
1: America and the world still seems to have balloon fever. Should we have shot it down? When should we have shot it down? What does it mean for the future of U.S.-China relations? And what does it mean for the UFO slash UAP Community, which, like it or not, there is a UAP community. It was very interesting in that a lot of hobbyists of uh, this sort of thing were able to capture some of the audio transmissions having to do with the moment that uh, this balloon was shot down on Sunday. Here was, or Saturday, whatever it was, Saturday or Sunday, here was audio captured by aviation enthusiast Ken Harrell.
4: Frank 1.
10: Frank 1. Last 1. T-L-I-1. One. I just copied. Splash. That is a big kill. The balloon is completely
12: destroyed.
1: That, we learned yesterday when we were talking with Steve Cates that the names of these missiles are Frank 1 and Frank 2. And, uh, hey, we may not be able to... Uh, Win any wars anymore, but at least we can blow up balloons. Am I right? All right. Someone who I have been very eager to talk with about this has been the go-to researcher on uh, on UFOs for literally years. He is a New York Times best-selling author. He's written more books than I've read including the uh, bestseller The Day After Roswell. He happens to be a a Ph.D. He happens to have a law degree. He happens to be incredibly accomplished and uh, uh, someone that I really enjoy talking to, one of the best writers in the world, and a gifted storyteller, the one and only Bill Burns. Uh, Bill, thanks so much for joining me on the radio again. Hi, it's my pleasure, Frank. This has been an incredible week, hasn't it? That that's for sure. Give me your your thoughts and your take on the balloon situation generally, and then I have a few specific questions based on things that people have raised over the last few days.
4: Well, sure. The balloon story has so many facets to it, it's like an insect's eye. On the one hand, why would the Chinese the the PLA, the, the People's Liberation Army, why would they be so stupid As to fly a balloon at 60-ish thousand feet, 65,000 feet, over the United States in full view, and almost inviting the United States counterintelligence, because that's what we did. That's why we let the balloon float. What we were able to do, we've, we've been fighting this war with China for years. We've been fighting this war with Russia for years. So this is not new. This has been going on since the Cold War. The, what we were able to do is intercept all of the information that the balloon was collecting. So, in fact, the balloon was like a factor for us. It collected the intelligence that the Chinese were interested in but we collected their intelligence so we know what they were after. We know they were lingering over Malmstrom Air Force Base, um, possibly Minot Air Force Base. That's where the bulk of our missiles are. They were over uh, Whitman Air Force Base in Montana, which is where our, um, our B-2 fleet is. So part of what's going on is we know what they're interested in. We know what they want to know about. We were able to collect, to do two things. The United States, and I'm assuming Russia has the same capability, the United States has the ability to block signals going to satellites, balloons, and we could uh, uh, jam those signals. What we could also do is pirate those signals and know what the other side uh, is doing. So the balloon presented us probably one of the most fascinating counterintelligence opportunities ever. So that was one. Why are they stupid? What are they looking for? Why would they be so obvious? So that's one. Then you've got, we know what they were looking for. That's two. Now, by letting the balloon go into the ocean instead of crashing on land, that balloon crashes on land all that technology is gone. it's destroyed. We know what the balloon is seeing because we can pirate their signals. so there's nothing really um, uh, uh, that serious about intelligence that uh, that the Chinese are getting. But here's what we get by blowing it up over the water, what we get is all of their technology wet but all of their technology, which is not destroyed by by, uh, by um, seven miles across the ground. Not even to mention, if one piece of that balloon hits one car, hits one building, hits one schoolhouse, kills one child, you can imagine the uproar it's going to be. Oh, yeah. So you're going to bring it down, bring it down safely. But so now we have all of their prized technology. But here's the, here is the funniest part about it, uh, and I got I, I, I to remind folks of this. This is not the first balloon that's crossed the United States. Um, during the last administration, there were at least three balloons. There were more before that. What? But why didn't they make the news the way this did? Why? What could have prevented the military from making a general announcement? Here's what prevented the military from doing it. They didn't know what the balloons were. So the balloons effectively, according to the military in, in, mm. in, in prior years, were UFOs. UFOs, UAPs, are covered up by the government. This this revelation about UFO activity hasn't, didn't really start this new revelation until Barack Obama. Right, right. So the government's been keeping UFOs secret, which is why those balloons were kept secret from Donald Trump.
1: The uh, the, very interesting, all that. And it was very interesting to hear General Petraeus, who, in addition to being a uh, retired four star general, was the head of the CIA for a time. Last night, he was on the Cats at Night show speaking with my colleague, Dominic Carter, about the the balloon and the kind of the nexus between UFOs and UAPs. This is what General Petraeus said.
5: I think what's happened in the past is that it has, in essence, felt our edges. Literally, it's just gone in into our airspace very briefly and then pulled out the, it was seen and classified as I understand it as what the modern version, uh, modern name is for an unidentified flying object. And it took some time to figure out that, Oh, by the way, those incursions were what now has transited first the Aleutians and into Canada. And then of course, went right into uh, the continental United States.
3: Uh, So this is
13: different.
1: We've talked before, Bill, about the UAP report and all the documented instances of UAPs that the military can't explain or doesn't want to explain. And a lot of people believe that there's a possibility that these unexplained aerial phenomenon could be uh, extraterrestrials or something unusual could all these UAPs, the 100 or so, 140 so or so that are identified in the reports that have come from the Director of National Intelligence Office, could all of these be Chinese spy balloons or spy balloons from other countries?
4: Probably not because of the interactivity between um, some of those uh, phenomena and human beings. I mean, for example... They weren't balloons in 2011 and 2017 over the, over the um, San Diego Naval Base. I mean, they were actually craft. Right. They were probably drones, but, but they were craft. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if, especially now, I wouldn't be surprised if there are UFOs surveilling the activity in the war in Ukraine. Because the more Vladimir Putin hints at oh we're gonna there's gonna be chemical weapons, the Ukrainians using chemical weapons, oh they're gonna be using nuclear weapons, the more that talk hits the airwaves, the more let's just say our colonial overlords and they've been overlording us since the nineteen forties when we first developed nuclear power. I mean, that's a planet destroyer. And if we're their colony, then the last thing they want to see are human beings destroying themselves, either through nuclear war or climate change. So I expect that there's activity over Ukraine right now that uh, both sides, this is what happened in Vietnam, that both sides agree we don't touch. Uh, I spoke to um, an NSA intercept pilot. The NSA, during the Vietnam War, The NSA flew what are known as intercept planes. We did the same thing China did. Um, We flew planes over Vietnam to scrub all radio transmissions. In fact, there was an intercept plane when John McCain was shot down and he was being picked up. We actually had the radio transmissions of the North Vietnamese Viet Cong unit that was taking him to prison Uh, But because of the NSA rules on interfering with Pentagon activities, we never transmitted that information. We knew he was was captured the moment he was captured. So um, the intercept planes had a code, and it was a code they transmitted to the Soviet and Chinese anti-aircraft crews that were shooting down American planes and the code was something like a 99. 99 meant that it wasn't us, it was a UFO, don't shoot at it. Hmm. So there was a general a general understanding among nations, don't shoot them down.
1: So when you say UFOs over Ukraine, You mean that in the more traditional sense that people use that term, something extraterrestrial or what we would consider to be non-human?
4: Yes, that's exactly what I would consider it to be.
1: What do you think happens next in terms of – so, again, you raised the question but didn't necessarily postulate a theory as to – Why China would do this? Why would they send a balloon that was so visible, not just to American intelligence agencies, but to commercial airline pilots and even people on the ground, knowing that they have broader satellite capability and knowing that we have, as you said, the technology, albeit wet technology of theirs? Why would they do this? The Chinese.
4: I believe there were a bunch of reasons. One. Imagine that what they wanted to get from us, and they got it. What they wanted to get was what would our air defenses look like as the balloon passed over. That's why it lingered, Frank. If they just wanted intelligence, get in, get out, they would have done that the way they did it um, five years ago, six years ago. This was different. What they wanted from – and in fact, even though this was different – this is the exact same thing that happened over 60 years ago during the Eisenhower administration. In 1962, Francis Gary Powers was shot down in a U-2 over the Soviet Union. Right. And the question was, and this, uh, Chris Wallace did this on ABC News, the, um, why would we do that? Why would we have the plane flying so low that the Soviet air defenses um, were alerted and shot the plane down. Why? Because what we wanted was just that. We wanted to trigger the Soviet Union's anti-aircraft defenses so we knew what their capabilities were.
1: That's what the Chinese are doing. It's almost like the... The aviation equivalent of in an old Western, maybe there's a Mexican standoff where two people are hiding behind a rock so that they don't get shot. And then they'll they'll throw something in, and see if people shoot at it um, and and they'll know whether or not it's safe to come out from behind the rock.
4: This is exactly the same thing as every Western movie from the 1950s. Right. I mean, you're right. That's exactly what they were doing. If we do this. And all your air defenses gets uh, get aroused, get activated. What does that look like to the intelligence of in that balloon? So you know what we do? We go silent. We surveil the balloon. We pick up their radio signals. We block the balloon from any serious intelligence gathering, wait till it's over the ocean, and shoot it the hell down and get all that treasure trove of counterintelligence That we would have destroyed had we shot it down over Montana. But, yes, they were trying to trigger our air defenses. This was exactly one of the items they were doing. How would the United States react to a violation, a serious violation, a a cross-continental violation of their airspace? We just showed them. So we blocked the balloon from sending signals. We copied the signals ourselves. We shot the balloon then over the ocean and collected all their information. Thank you, China, for giving us all that intelligence.
1: What then, assuming that is an accurate theory, what then do you think is the next step in the future of the U.S.-China relationship. It's been very fraught and very tenuous of late, but uh, there is this level of economic codependency that these two countries have on one another. Where do you see the U.S.-China relationship going from here?
4: We are in competition, there's no question about it. And this is kind of the first stirrings of a Cold War. We are fighting World War III right now, even though it doesn't seem really apparent. But we are fighting World War III. Ukraine in um, 2023 is exactly like Spain at the beginning of World War II. It, it's where the great powers faced off: uh, the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s. The United States was a part of that. So we are on the cusp of another war. In in our book, Space Wars. One of the things we talked about was there is now a war. It exists in space. There is a war in space going on, not a shooting war, not a war of missiles or lasers, but it's a war of information gathering going on in uh, near-Earth orbit right now. We are monitoring Soviet and Chinese satellites and all of their assets, and they're monitoring ours. We have killer satellites in orbit they have killer satellites in orbit. One of the first moments before an attack would be an attack on our surveillance satellites. Well First of all, I uh, uh, want to bring down GPS. The minute you bring down GPS, you've shut down most of the economic um, activity in the United States because it's all done online. So I think that what's happening now, especially with this balloon, Is These are like picket charges, picket break-ins to see where the defenses are weakest, how much time can they spend before being detected, um, what will happen if if you poke the bear. So they're trying to poke the bear. We're poking the bear. They're poking the bear. This is the very, very beginnings of if there is a World War III where it's going to start, it's going to start in space.
1: Interesting. Interesting. Uh, we're going to try and squeeze in some of your questions for Bill Burns throughout the hour. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. There's also been a great deal of news on the AI front, including a story you might not have heard about. We'll break that down for you in a moment. Talking with Bill Burns, New York Times best-selling author, the publisher of UFO Magazine, and a man that's regularly featured on the History Channel, the Discovery Channel, you name it, if there's been a a documentary made having anything to do with space or history, uh, let alone UAPs. Chances are they've interviewed Bill Burns for it. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead.
2: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files.
1: My guest is William Burns, New York Times best-selling author. He's written many books, including The Day After Roswell. And uh, he is analyzing the balloon situation, which seems to have captivated the attention and the imagination, quite frankly, of a lot of Americans and a lot of people all over the world. Bill, do you think the fact that uh, the... Uh, the the president prior, the, uh, the prior president, President Trump, indicated that he wasn't told about this. Uh, do you think that indicates either a failure in military intelligence capabilities or a failure in sort of the, the chain of command with uh, Commander-in-Chief and some of his top generals and maybe even the Secretary of Defense?
4: No, what I think was that since they categorized these um, Trump-era balloons as UFOs, as a matter of policy, UFOs were deep sexed That's a matter of government policy. It didn't change. It started changing in 2011. It started changing in 2017. Now it has changed with this um, Office of National Intelligence um, uh, conducting reviews of all these UFO cases. But um, during the Trump administration, absolutely there was um, just a clampdown on things that could have been UFOs over the United States. That would have been very scary during that administration. So they deep-sixed it. It's interesting that UFOs and UFOs are covered up.
1: One of the people that's been pretty outspoken in hinting, uh, maybe in some cases more than hinting, that there's something else out there is the former director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe. If he is seemingly so open-minded and encouraging public... uh, exploration of this question you would have thought that we might have seen some different results in the trump administration
4: once you start pulling i'll tell you this right now frank because people have been saying this but oh just admit there are ufos and move it on no once you pull that little thread you're going to unravel a whole bunch of stuff the one thing that you're going to have to answer. The minute you say there are UFOs not from this planet, you're going to have to answer this. Who are they? Where are they from? Why are they here? And what does that say about us? I mean, what if at some point in the next five years, we figure out that, yeah, there is such a thing as a Yeti, as an abominable (laughs) snowman, as a Sasquatch. What if we find that out? I mean, I've spoken to people, police chiefs, Police chiefs, Pennsylvania police chiefs. You know what they how they spend their summers, their vacations? They go Bigfoot hunting in the Allegheny Mountains. I'm serious. I, I go to UFO conventions and I see these police chiefs saying, yeah, we found these tracks. We found this. We found that. The, um, if we find out, and this would be a stunning revelation, that what we're calling Bigfoot was here before us. And we replace them. Talk about replacement theory. Homo sapiens replaced Bigfoot. That's why there is this issue between the two species. I mean, that could be one fallout from this. That is the last thing we want to
1: know. Well, you know. well, I've actually spoken with some cryptozoologists on this program, and that's precisely their theory as to what occurred. Obviously, these, some of the, you mentioned the uh, uptick in UFO sightings over Eastern Europe with this Russia Ukraine war, and uh, you indicated something similar occurred during Vietnam. This is not just an American phenomenon. We've spoken with uh, Nicholas Pope many times before, who used to head the uh, Royal Ministry of Defense, um, basically UFO watching unit for the British. What do we know about the level of international cooperation on UAP sightings, etc.? Not only between the United States and allied countries, but the United States and adversarial countries. Because I would think if a lot of these, uh, these objects, whatever they are are hovering around nuclear missile silos and places like that, the places that uh, they'd be very likely to be spending a lot of time are not just the United States, but Russia and even China. Do we know if our government has had any in-depth conversations with adversarial governments on the UAP issue? Yes, not so
4: much China, but certainly Russia. In fact, we were... When we were filming um, UFO files, we went to Kapustin Yar, which is the Soviet Union's version, or Russia's version, of Area 51. And the kind of stuff we found out that there was an entire Russian um, intelligence operation about UFOs. There have been UFO fights over Moscow. There are stories about—and the big thing that got the Russians crazy— happened in 1986 when a UFO appeared over a Soviet missile base, just like uh, the, the UFO appeared over Momsom Air Force Base in the 1960s. It appeared over the Soviet base. And get this. Here's what happened. The Soviet controllers, just like our controllers, it's the same thing, Frank. They're sitting in their silos, and they're hardwired to the missile command consoles. And they notice that suddenly before their very eyes, the missiles, the consoles turn hot, that the missiles are now being programmed and they're being fueled because they're liquid fuels. So they're being fueled and they're getting ready. And they realize that the launch codes are being entered into the missile computers. Wow. So they go screaming at Moscow Center and saying, you got to stop this. You've you got to stop this. We oh, we don't want to start a nuclear war. Moscow Center tries to intervene and shut down the silos. They can't. They're blocked. The silos are hot. The codes are punched in, not by, not by the controllers, but by the UFO, and they're hitting the United States. Nothing can stop the launch as the countdown begins, and then they shut completely down. And the message to the Soviet controllers is very simple. We control your missiles, and you don't. And the same thing happened at Malmstrom Air Force Base in 1966 and later on at Minot Air Force Base, where a UFO appeared over the missile silos. And suddenly uh, Captain Salas tells us – he was in charge of the, um, that particular silo, Air Force uh, captain – tells us that the lights just went out. That the silo controllers lost complete control of the guided missiles, and these are hired, hardwired connections, Frank, not digital, but hardwired. These are analog. And suddenly this light, this red light over the monster Air Force Base shut down the missile silos. That message was as simple as simple could be. You do not have the right to destroy this planet with nuclear right. weapons.
1: Well, thank goodness. Thank goodness. Um, uh, That's right. You have written the book on Roswell, actually multiple books that involve Roswell. Initially, the contemporary reporting uh, at the time was that the object that crashed was a flying saucer. Within a day or two, the military released a statement and said it's a weather balloon. As far as you're concerned, is there any possibility at all cuz the chinese are calling the spy balloon they're calling the spy balloon a weather balloon is there any possibility is there any possibility at all that what the object that was over roswell was actually a weather balloon here's the funny
4: part about what you just said
1: they did think
4: it was a balloon in the first moments of that crash they thought it was a balloon But they didn't think it was a weather balloon. What they thought – see, the Chinese didn't invent this. The Japanese invented it. Actually, Napoleon invented this. But um, we believed in 1947 that what crashed at Roswell was a balloon, but it was a Japanese fire balloon during World War II. It's an incredible story. You think the United States is totally invulnerable? We weren't. In, at the start of World War II, the Japanese Imperial Navy launched anthrax weather balloons at the United States, carried across by the ocean currents that were supposed to crash in American cities and spread anthrax. Now, the United States, of course, we realize this, we're not stupid. We realize this, and here's what we realized that if we told If we went public with this story, you're talking 1944-ish, 1945-ish. If we went public with this story, you'd be telling the Japanese gunners how successful they were in their targeting. We'd be the long-range spotters for the Japanese artillery launching balloons. So we deep 6 the story. When the Roswell crash happened— We thought that was a Japanese balloon, a fugu. We called them fire balloons, fugu's. That's why we covered it up initially in the first hours and changed the whole thing around and then replaced that story with the Japanese fire balloon with an American weather balloon. You knew it couldn't have been a weather balloon because the weather balloon factory was right across the street from the Roswell Army Air Base. So even today, I've been told by CIA folks that that story of keeping the weather balloon and the Japanese fire balloon a secret is to this very day part of the CIA's most successful attempts to keep that secret.
1: Wow. Wow! 800 I have a lot of questions about AI and where we're going on that front. But a lot of people are eager to talk with you. Uh, let me say hello to uh, Chris in the Catskills. Hello, Chris.
0: Hey, uh, good morning, gentlemen. So I've seen UFOs twice in my lifetime, and your visceral response is to tell people that you trust about it. And actually, two months ago, I was going for a walk, and I saw UFOs, and I went to call into the station to talk to Frank about it because I had been on the air with the previous host, Dominic Carter, and there was a lot of weird phenomenon going on that night. It was very thick, hazy clouds. You know, I was out taking a walk for like an hour. Uh, Late at night, and uh, there was a full moon out. And I'm not sure if some of the things I saw were optical illusions because of the cloud formations. Maybe he could address that. But I have a question. The part of New York State that I live in is known for having uh, UFO sightings. I had a a second time, the only other time in my life I saw UFOs was in July of 1988 when I was driving my car. Um, There's high concentrations of magnetite rock. In the Catskills, northwest of me, like 15 to 20 miles away, uh, I've been told and I've heard that there's a theory that UFOs derive energy from areas where they fly over, where there's high concentrations of magnetite rocks. Could he address those um, questions?
4: Yes. And in fact, to answer your question, there's another connection with magnetite. in crop circle formations the crop circle formations are heavy in magnetite in fact the crop circle formations where these fireballs come down are so heavy with magnetite that birds migratory birds flying over these crop circle formations avoid the formations they make giant deviations around the formations why the magnetite. When we surveyed some land where there was a a crop circle in New Jersey, what we found was the levels of magnetite in that former crop circle years later, by the way, years later, that it was heavy with magnetite. Mm. So when you say magnetite, you're on the money.
1: Charles is in Queens. Hello, Charles. Hi, good
11: morning. First of all, Fantastic interview, really fascinating stuff, Mr. William Burns is telling us. But I have a question. I'm not going to be challenging, Mr. Burns. I don't begin to have the knowledge that he has. But is, there's two things that don't really uh, – that's bothering me. One, uh, if you're saying that the, um, the U-2 plane with Gary Powers as the pilot was shot, shot over Russia, that that was the idea. We wanted them to shoot it down. That would seem that Gary Powers was on a, close to a suicide mission. I mean, you know, kamikaze, and I mean, that doesn't make sense. He ended up living, I believe. You know, he was captured, whatever. The other question would be, if if, um, if if that was the case, why would they do it when Khrushchev, if my memory is correct, 61 years ago, if when Khrushchev, I believe, was in America, I don't know if that was the time he started taking a shoe off. I think he had a third shoe under the table anyways, to start banging and he's angry while we're flying U-2 planes over Russia. But that was the time America got embarrassed. If what you're saying is accurate and, and we wanted to see what the Russians are going to do, why do it at that time? And why risk Gary Powers' life? Or maybe he knew about it or what?
4: What do you think, doesn't though? Seem to. Here's the answer. Here's the answer. Um, it's this. That Ga- Francis Gary Powers wasn't supposed to be shot down. He was flying too low. The um, WABC News, my God, all the way back in the 1980s, did a special with Chris Wallace on why, on what the purpose of the U-2 planes were. And, the, and since we already had satellites, we already had a, tr- a tracking, why were these planes flying so low? Here was the answer. This is what the pilots said. They were ordered to fly low enough to trigger the Soviet anti-aircraft systems and then fly high enough to escape the missiles when they were shot. So it wasn't just Francis Gary Powers There were other U-2 pilots, spy plane pilots that were shot at by missiles. The point was to trigger the defenses to know exactly from the radio signals how the Soviets communicated the locations of aircraft, scrub the signals, get them to launch their missiles, fly high enough above the ceiling of the missiles so that they'd miss. Francis Gary
1: Powers was flying too low. That is, uh, that is pretty interesting, and that's a version of that, the Gary Powers story that I had not heard uh, previously. I, I want to switch gears because we've spent a lot of time discussing the hopes and fears of artificial intelligence, and uh, I find what's happening now simultaneously very exciting but also very frightening. There was a story that got uh, maybe not as much attention as I think it deserved – Headline, AI designs proteins that can kill bacteria, paving the way for creation of new medicines. Artificial intelligence apparently designed these bacteria-killing proteins from scratch, and they work. Uh, This AI was tasked with creating proteins with antimicrobial properties. Researchers then created a subset of the proteins, and they found that some did the job. How remarkable is this in terms of the history of technology and human civilization?
4: My initial reaction, when you look at the reality of this, it's frightening. I'll tell you why. Everybody should be afraid of this. This is like the modern Victor Frankenstein. A computer, an artificially intelligent quantum computer Created out of protein, a new strain of microbial life. I mean, if first of all this flies in the face of everything in the Bible, but the um, the point is that a computer created life on this planet. Be very afraid. What does that mean? It means that an artificially intelligent computer according to these scientists, now has the ability to create bacteria that can do all sorts of things. Let's say, between us and our audience, that a rogue scientist or a well-meaning scientist who's a little fuzzy in the uh, attic, inserts an algorithm... Into that type of computer, which is the um, instruction to clean the planet up from climate change, get rid of all the pollution, clean the planet up from climate change, invent a bacteria that will do that. Do you know what that
1: beer? Period- that bacteria would do, Frank? Well, I imagine it wouldn't be a good situation for those of us that are still driving non-electric cars, for starters. It would kill us. Because if you want to bring the planet back to its original
4: condition, its climax community condition, get rid of civilization. So you do think there's a... Civilization that's destroyed the planet since the 19th century. We now know. That the basic forces of this planet have been altered due to human civilization, to human technology civilization, starting with the age of machines in the 19th century. My theory is that if a computer is told to get rid of all the pollution, that's what they will get rid of, us. And it's my theory, it's happened before. We're not the first civilization on this planet.
1: The, so you do think that uh, all this AI advanced technology could lead to some sort of a, a Terminator-type situation where artificial intelligence turns on its creators and gets rid of us?
4: Sure. All you have to do, the algorithm, use the H5N1 viral strain. That's bird flu. And that bird flu has been infecting flocks across the planet. Right now, we believe that that particular version of the flu does not transmit to – it is zoonotic, but it doesn't transmit to human beings. It needs an intermediary party. That intermediary party are pigs. So that's why bird flu and swine flu are remarkably Mm -hmm. alike. And swine flu, because human beings eat pork, swine flu would be a way for the virus to migrate into the human population. And we don't have a cure for it.
14: Um,
1: In terms of AI, right, and what we're doing What do you think we should be doing as individuals? What should uh, these uh, big tech companies that are rushing to invest in AI, almost like it's the new space race, uh, to implement the AI technology in their search engines? And what should government be doing? Individuals, private sector, big tech companies, and government. How can we kind of, I don't know that we can make sure, but what can we do to try not to be exterminated by AI? you
4: impose upon ai just the way you impose upon all robots isaac asimov's first rules of robotics rule number 1 is that a robot and i'm considering artificial intelligence and computers to be robots that robots shall not as a matter of law as a matter of algorithmic law shall not kill, cause grievous harm, or through their inaction, allow the death or grievous harm to human beings. That's the first rule of Asimov's robotics. We impose that rule. We impose that rule that is one
1: step in
4: the right direction.
1: All right, we're going to continue with Bill Burns in just a minute. Uh, if there's time, I want to talk a little bit about these Idaho murders and uh, what the killer here, Brian Koberger, might have been thinking and how, what might have driven him to uh, kill a few innocent people in the manner that he did. This is uh, The Other Side of Midnight, joined for the hour by Bill Burns, New York Times bestselling author. Uh, you could go on uh, Amazon and uh, check out his work. A lot of great books on there. B-I-R-N-E-L.
7: Movement that inspires. Call 800 333 for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.
2: It's the other side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano talking with William Burns, New York Times bestselling author. A lot of great books, including The Day After Roswell. Bill, uh, Brian Koberger, uh, this uh, horrible situation in Idaho. A lot of people have been scratching their heads in search of some sort of a motive. Any theories here as to what went on?
4: Yep, I do. I um... do. He was a criminology. First of all, he's a sociopath. So we know that. He's described his own symptoms. He's delusional. He's divorced from reality. But his one hook into reality, his purpose in life, right? It's the whole story of the purposeful life. His story, his purpose in life is to study criminal justice. So from the time he's in college in Pennsylvania, um, and then all the way through to. washington state he is a graduate student in a phd program that's not small stuff and a phd program studying criminology who's he studying if you're studying serial killers the archetype of serial killers has to be ted bundy and i believe from the um snapshot of his crime. That he's reenacting the crimes of Ted Bundy, who becomes his hero. That's my theory. That he's reenacting because his murders in that um, student apartment house, those are Ted Bundy's Kyle Omega sorority house murders.
7: Wow. Wow.
4: His tracking of this one of, of this one young lady who was um, a, a female student there. He kept on texting her and visiting the same cafe where she ate over and over again. That is Ted Bundy's first crime of Linda Healy. That he knew his victim. In fact, when we were writing our book The River Man, which people should read, which is the snapshot of a serial murder case, when we were writing our book The River Man, we found out that Ted Bundy was cashing his checks based on the timestamp on the check, Frank, he was cashing his check at the exact same cashier as Linda Healy, Wow. later killed. He was stalking her. That's what this guy was doing. So I would say this crime was lethal cosplay.
1: A lot of uh, listeners, when I first started talking about this, after this fellow was arrested, they brought up comparisons to Leopold and Loeb. Uh, Do you see any comparisons there?
4: No, and I think the real comparison is Ted Bundy, that he studied Bundy. He probably read the book The River Man. He probably read Serial Killers. I mean, if he studied criminology, he would have read these books. His crimes in Idaho are, I'm telling you, it's almost as though he's following step-by-step step Ted Bundy's crime. I mean, read the book, read the, uh, the case. They're identical.
1: 800-848-9222 if you have questions. Jeff is in. Uh, actually, let me go. We have a lot of Queens folks. Let me say hello first to Joe in Queens. Hello, Joe.
10: Yeah, hi. My question is about AI, two things. One would be like it's its its own master due to uh, the ability to teach itself. Uh, like a, uh, That would be one. And also I think some of these elites think that uh, now that AI is available, that will substitute for the humans, which they can now eliminate.
1: Bill, what do you think?
4: Well, well, here's what I think. One, I think the next test for students that are, that are kids now in school, elementary school students, I think the test for them as they get into their high school years is how to program an AI computer. It's not going away. It's only going to be more and more involved in our daily lives. So the trick is not so much relying on it, but the trick is using it as a database to program it. I think that will be the next level of education. I mean, as an English teacher, I'm obsoleted by this thing. (laughs) I mean, my job is over. Uh, as a lawyer, my job is over. So, um, but you have to learn how to algorithmically program this thing to get it to spit out the information you want.
1: Jeff is in Queens. Hello, Jeff.
15: Hi, thanks for having me. I just want to thank you for having a show and thank you callers because you've got a lot of people that contribute to this uh, conversation that you really can't find out information. I don't think anywhere else. Um, as far as I, aliens, um, people, other like things, by all means, have they been here? Yes, they have. Do we know that? Well, laser, the only thing I want to talk to the laser, look at CDs and look at the the gauge that you measured like last year with the COVID. You know, they had the little laser. HVAC guys use it for the vent. They see the temperature coming out. How do they work? How does that laser know to read the temperature and bring it back to the gauge, but then the CD laser could read songs on a disc, so like we pointed something at that satellite at that balloon. we't did even have to we, we even have to fly near it. We hit that with a laser from somewhere yeah. that could tell us everything that's on it, just like they have on the highways. Jeff they could look at the thank trailer you trucks.:
1: Thank you. We so only I have like, about a minute there. left. I, I want to give bill the, the, la- the last word. Thank you for the call, Jeff and the compliment.
4: Jeff, that's what we're doing. I mean, you put your finger on it. That's what we're doing with our communications and laser ability. Do you know, Jeff? I'll be real quick because I know we got to run. Um, that TWA flight 800 that crashed off the south shore of Long Island in Jamaica Bay. That do you know that that was one of the results of a test of a laser carrying data underwater. That's why it was covered up so much, because it was a secret weapon back then.
1: Yeah, you wrote a a great book about the TWA Flight 800 situation, didn't you?
4: Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, the downing of TWA Flight 800. I mean, that was, it was Nikola Tesla's dream of a robotic weapon. And it resulted, especially now with this FBI investigation of this guy McGonagall, that resulted in a whole bunch of stuff for the Russians, because the Russians wanted to know what we
7: were doing.
1: Yeah. Bill, it is always a treat talking with you, whether it's AI, aliens, uh, balloons, or murderers. I can't think of a more well-versed guest. Thank you so much.
4: Okay, you have a wonderful day, Frank.
1: Thank you. You too. Appreciate you staying up late, as always. 800 if you want to comment. Your influence counts, so use it. This
2: is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
1: Good morning, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. A couple of quick notes here one i did get hungry and uh, just about a minute and a half ago i consumed a banana that is believed to have been uh, uh, uh believed to belong to Curtis Slewa however it was not labeled and we now have signage up here telling people very specifically put your name and the date on your food in any common area otherwise it's mad max beyond thunderdome it's all up for grabs i used the banana peeling method that I described earlier, which is instead of peeling it from the stem, peeling it from the other end of the banana. I have to tell you, it was great. The first time I've done it, and I am a convert. This is my Saul of Tarsus moment. There was none of those annoying banana strings. I had this great handle to hold the banana. It was terrific. Terrific. You just pinch the 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 non-stem end of the banana. I'm not going to call it the bottom because to me, from now on, it's the top. I am going with the monkey method. And let me tell you something. I recommend it to you. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on that. Let me take you back in time to 26 hours ago where I referenced uh, the interview, the, the appearances that Dr. Skye is going to be doing on this show. Now, Dr. Skye comes on every two weeks, right? So this is what I said at the very top of our show. A bi-weekly tradition continues. Now, then Dr. Sky says, hello? And he says to me...
16: Well, good morning, Frank. Good to be with you and the listeners in our bi-monthly event here. So,
1: he's on every two weeks. That's twice a month. What does biweekly mean? Let's start with that. Matt Blaze, I say the term biweekly to you. What does that mean?
12: It means every other week.
1: Every other week. Uh, you concur with that, Kenneth? Indeed. Now, here's what's interesting. Both of them are right. However, if you go to the dictionary, there are two definitions of the word biweekly, and I have to tell you, and it's the same with uh, with biannual as well. This is absolutely ludicrous. And apparently it's been this way in the English language for 150 years or so. And it needs to end, right? So biweekly means occurring every two weeks, just as Matt Blaze, Kenneth, and I all meant it to mean. But it also means occurring twice a week. There are two definitions of the word biweekly. It means occurring every two weeks, or fortnightly, and it means occurring twice a week. For instance, you know, Andrew Giuliani is on Sid Rosenberg's morning show on WABC in New York twice a week. He is on on a bi-weekly basis. Dr. Sky is on with me every two weeks. He's on on a bi-weekly basis. Both definition of definitions of the word are, are correct. My friends, this is insanity. This is insanity. Additionally, let's look at bi-monthly. Same situation. Uh, Bi-monthly has the same two definitions. One, occurring every two months. And two, occurring twice a month. So Dr. Sky is on with me every two weeks, which is twice a month. So technically, he's on both bi-weekly and bi-monthly. This is absolutely ludicrous. We have a situation where bi-weekly and bi-monthly could be used to mean the same thing. Or they could be used to mean very different things. So I think we need to stop this. Bi-weekly and bi-monthly should not mean the same thing. And yet they do. It's like that uh, when John Lovitz was the liar and uh, people would always say, oh, that seems unbelievable. And he would uh, say something to the effect of, and yet it happened. We're living in a world where bi-weekly and bi-monthly means the same thing. This needs to end. Additionally, bi-weekly and, you know, by extension, bi-monthly and bi-annually – They cannot mean the opposite of one another. You cannot have something that happens twice a week mean the same thing as something that happens every other week. Not mean the same thing, but have the same word for it. So why am I talking about this? One, because it's interesting. Two, do you know how the English language changes and evolves over time? For instance, 40 or 50 years ago, if you said, I could care less you'd be laughed out of whatever gin joint you were in. These days, if you say, I could care less, you're, you're considered a no- normal person. In fact, that's now the majority. The only way the English language changes, it's why we don't have the word literally anymore, why we don't have a word that means literally anymore. The only way the English language changes is by people changing it and using different words to mean different things. And I am imploring you, we need to pick one commonly understood definition of bi-weekly and one commonly uh, uh, understood definition of bi-monthly, and those two should not mean the same thing. Now, in the case of biannually, that could mean happening twice a year, or it could mean happening twice, um, once every two years. So what do they do? Because they don't want people confused. Because, right— Let's say I talk to a guest, and I'm not joking here. I know it sounds like I'm being flippant, and look, we're having fun. But this is a very serious problem. The, if you tell someone you want to meet with them on a biweekly basis, are they expecting to see you twice a week or well, once every two weeks? That's a big difference. So the only way they know how often you want to see them is if you provide additional clues as to an additional context as to how often you want to see them. Now, when you use a word, you're not supposed to have to use, oh, I mean this definition of the word. No. We need a gentleman's agreement, and I mean that in the gender-neutral sense. We need a gentleman's agreement on a concrete, solid, new definition for biweekly and for bimonthly. And what I'm suggesting is that we look to our biannual big brother, at least in the etymological sense. What does that mean? Well, if you want to know that you mean once every 6 months, not once every 2 years, then you don't say biannual because they could be waiting around for 2 years for that. What do you say? You say semi-annual. Semi-annual means once every 2 weeks. Excuse me, not once every 6 months. Occurring twice a year. It's a semi-annual event. Now, we need that same use of semi for weekly and monthly. Have you ever heard the term semi-weekly before? I haven't. That's what we should mean when we say twice in a week. Forget about bi-weekly. Semimonth- semi-weekly should mean twice in a week. Semi-monthly should mean twice in a month. Bi-weekly, Every two weeks. Buy monthly every two months. That is my proposal for the English language. Those of you that speak this language, you're welcome. But it only works is if everybody buys in. So what I'd like you to do today, I would like you to sign the, well, virtually sign it anyway, the semi-weekly, semi-monthly pledge. And what I'm asking you to do is every day... For the rest of your life, use the words semi-monthly and semi-weekly to mean twice a month and twice a week. I'm going to talk with Dr. Sky, for instance, uh, privately. and He was kind enough to give me a a shout-out when he was on the Cats at Night show yesterday talking to Dominic Carter. So I owe him a thank you for that anyway. And I'm going to ask him the next time he's on the show talking about the frequency of his appearances, he should refer to it as semi-monthly. So that is my suggestion. Who's with me? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. So I just look. Semi-monthly um, is a word. But I don't hear it used. I do not hear it used. So I, I let me check on the definition of semi-weekly here. So I, I'm not claiming to have invented semi-monthly or semi-weekly. What I am claiming is is to be the man that has popularized it, okay? So let's use semi-weekly to mean twice a week, and let's use bi-weekly to mean every two weeks. Deal? Good? Great. Calls, comments, thoughts, questions, criticism, have at it. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And as the saying goes, now for something completely different... We're going to be talking sports gambling in about 15 minutes with David Danzis, who is just a brilliant reporter and has covered the gambling issue, the casino issue, the sports betting issue better than anybody. And uh, he's a great guy besides. Um, Sunday is the Super Bowl, not only the Super Bowl of sports betting, but the Super Bowl, Uh, or I don't know if we're allowed to call the Super Bowl. We'll call it the big game. Excuse me. Sunday is the big game and Philadelphia public schools announced yesterday and i think this is a good idea that they're opening 2 hours late on the morning after the uh, after the big game on monday so in Kansas City Missouri schools will be open monday win or lose but schools plan a day off for a parade on wednesday if the chiefs win I have said for literally years, it makes no sense whatsoever to have to make people go to work the next day on Monday. First of all, a lot of people take the day off anyway. Second, the level of productivity, if they do go to work, is is nil for a lot of people. You have people that are tired people that are hung over, let people enjoy the game, have friends over. It'll be good for the economy in the long run because it'll lead to better Super Bowl parties. So what I have proposed, and this should not be just for Philadelphia or Kansas City or the, whatever teams happen to be in the big game, what I have proposed, and I'm not sure why the National Football League has not implemented this, honestly. To me, it's a no-brainer. Uh, I'm am on a, I'm on a good idea kick this hour, is as far as I'm concerned, The big game, the Super Bowl, should always be, always, the Sunday before President's Day. A lot of people are off for President's Day anyway, and maybe this will be the thing that encourages more employers and more government institutions to give people the day off. Um, I think it, it makes perfect sense to have the big game the sunday before president's day if you're going to keep it on a sunday here's kelly diggs a father on fox 29 philadelphia talking about the schools being closed after the big game
17: i feel good about it she wants to go downtown i told her if we win we go downtown and then
3: they get to sleep in that's correct do you think this benefits the parents a little more than
12: it does the kids yes it does (laughs)
1: Monique Braxton, school district of Philadelphia, spokesperson on Fox 29.
9: I think doing something like this only embraces what's happening in our city at this time. And you can't fault us for that.
1: Well, I mean, I, I don't know what kind of answer that was. Embraces what happens in our city at this time. <laughs> I mean, that's a that's that's a whole lot of gobbledygook and a whole lot of nothing. But... um. I I think this should not be just for Philadelphia school children. I think this should be for everybody. Give everybody the day off the day after the Super Bowl. And I'm not joking about it. I'm really serious. I think the the easy way to do this is just to have it be the Sunday before President's Day. Why not? It's in warm weather climates anyway. This year, I think President's Day is the following Monday. So what's a week, right? I mean, to me, I think it's a no-brainer. What do you think? Comment on semi-weekly, semi-monthly semi-annually, whatever, or the fact that Philadelphia schools are going to be starting two hours later because of the Super Bowl. A lot of parents don't think that's appropriate. They think schools should start on time. Maybe the kid's not a football fan. Maybe the parents are not a football fan. And why should parents have to worry about the inconvenience, for instance, of dropping their kid off two hours late? just because a lot of people want to watch the birds play. What do you think? 800-848-9222. 1-800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Original Rick in New Jersey. Hello, Original Rick.
4: Yes, good morning, Frank. Good morning. morning. I, I agree with you. you gotta, we have to wait, have a way to discern the difference, because the whole idea of language is to be able to understand each other. right? And if there's, if there's two meanings, it, it, you're going to have half the time someone making a mistake.
13: This reminds me of midnight, as well. I was delivering, I, I used to drive a truck, and they'd say, show up at midnight Wednesday. Do you know how many dispatchers met
4: the beginning of Wednesday? Uh, uh, of course, you would say beginning of Wednesday, like we just passed midnight Thursday. Some people would have thought this midnight they just passed was Wednesday. At the end of Wednesday is midnight. At the end of Thursday, there's no real discerning of when midnight is
1: that is such a good point i can't tell you how often i've um had miscommunications even though i emphasize it five times with guests who i book to come on 1:30 a.m. on thursday and then i say you know that's 1:30 in the morning yeah 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 and they're they're waiting around fr- till friday morning thinking that's the day there's a lot of confusion but that is in what i described and thanks rick That is um, the fault of the listener. The fact that no one knows what anybody is talking about when we use the phrase biweekly or bimonthly, and the fact that in the case of Dr. Sky and me, that biweekly and bimonthly can both be correct and mean the same thing makes no sense. You know, the Tower of Babel, the thing about the Tower of Babel, the reason no one understood one another Is because they all spoke different languages. We're now in a calendar tower of Babel where nobody understands what anybody is saying and we're all speaking properly. I don't understand these optional words. Bi-weekly can mean this or it can mean that. I mean, come on. What other, what other, what else can you do? I know flammable and inflammable is a special case because inflammable meant that it could be you know, set on fire and people kept getting confused. So they dropped the I N so flammable and inflammable mean the same thing. But where do you have the same word meaning two very different things? Oh, what is that? Oh, that's zero. What does zero mean? Oh, well, that depends. Sometimes it means one, sometimes it means zero. It's just ridiculous. 800-848-9222. We're going to talk with David Danzis from play NJ in just a moment. George is in Manhattan. Hello, George.
3: Hi. Listen, for decades, I've been wondering about this question, including midnight, you know. But let me tell you, what about biannually? Biennial, uh, biennially? B-I-E-N-N-I-A-L-L-Y, Biennially, Every uh, two years, it should be. Nothing else. Bi-weekly should mean every two weeks. Uh, and... Uh, by monthly should mean every two months, you know, and then uh, 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 I agree with you, you know, and then if you want to make it twice a week, uh, well, uh, it's very confusing. To semi-weekly. Use term.
1: Sem- that's, Semi- exactly. That yeah. should be the All term. Good. Semi-weekly.
3: Right. Although it sounds rather bizarre uh, because people haven't used it. Once they begin using semi-weekly or semi-monthly, they'll get used to it. Well, Exactly. And the
1: fact that there are already definitions that I was just able to look up, George, thank you, shows me that some people have thought about this. And that's why I'm not joking about this. I am serious. I would really like and look, I saw the numbers and I've seen three different metrics measuring our audience, the radio ratings. The uh, streaming numbers and the podcast listenership, all of them are up significantly from where we we were six months ago or a year ago. And we're adding more and more stations all the time. So if everyone in this audience was serious about taking this pledge that I'm asking you to take to use the phrase semi-weekly and mean it uh, to mean, intend it to mean twice a week we could end this bi-weekly crisis once and for all. So join me. Don't do it on a semi-weekly or semi-monthly basis. Do it daily. 800 That's a 800-848-9222. Sam is in Brooklyn. Hello, Sam.
15: Uh, you said that
5: bi-weekly and semi-monthly are the same thing. They're not the same thing because there are 13 weeks and three months. Well,
1: that's so, true. Okay, but most months it's the same thing.
5: Approximately, but over a period of three months, uh, uh, over six months, it'll be twelve times if it's semi-monthly and thirteen times if it's bi-weekly. I,
1: I, that, that's true, uh, Sam. But for the month of February, for instance, if we're talking oh, about well, well, right, if yeah. we're talking radio appearances, which is what prompted the discussion, when I say bi-weekly. And uh, Doctor Sky says, bi monthly, it's the same number of appearances, right?
5: I don't know. No, it isn't over a period of couple. Uh, no, it's no, going to stay that way. February, right? February, For so. February, February. It's going to be the same period period of time apart. Yeah, but but eventually it's going to differ differ because it's going to be uh, twenty six times if it's. Uh, Bi, bi- right. weekly and twenty four times
1: if it's semi monthly. Th- this is true. You're you're right. Uh, I still think the fact that it's the same so often necessitates a new word. Maybe not a new word, but a new popular uh, popular usage of an existing term. Semi monthly. Here we come. Semi weekly. Right back where I started from. Right. That's the song. Right. Isn't that how the song was? Semi weekly, here I come, right back where I started from. Semi monthly, da da da. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Let me say hello to Deborah in New Jersey. This is not my sister-in-law, Deborah, is it? No,
9: it is not. Ah, uh, well, if it
1: was, I was going to tell you to thank your husband for this banana peeling technique. Thank you.
9: <laughs> okay. Uh, Frank, you were talking about Brian Koberger. Have you heard, are you up to date with uh, a mother of the two students that were at the college? The mother has come out publicly and said that her daughter was called early in the morning, like a lot of the students were, to go over to the house when they were talking. And they knew about it before the police. And that there was one other girl in the house that left when those students came over. She got out of the house. So there was another girl there. And they I, were afraid. This this mother, her name is Kim. She's coming out with a very different story of what went on that
1: night. Yeah, I did see that reported, and uh, I'm interested yes. to look into that uh, a bit and more. I don't know what to make of this, honestly.
9: Well, why would she come out? She's saying who she is. She's putting her children's life, you know, out there, and they're not happy about it because they right. didn't want this exposed. She also said there were two other guys with him that night.
1: So, what two do you th- th- what do you think happened, Deborah?
9: They're saying, well, I don't know, because as more comes out, I remember they were very quiet about what was going on. They didn't tell us a lot. It seems the more that comes out, it's a totally different story. He left his apartment supposedly at a certain time. Do you know where, when he left his apartment, some young man ro- drove over two people in that parking lot with his car?
1: I did not know where that. Brian actually. lived. Yeah, yes. That's why. Look
9: that up. Okay, now he left there at a, at a precise time. How did he just happen to just come upon that and know that those students would be there in that house? Right. Well, only a few of them. They, the mother says, you got to, you can listen to her interview. She really talks and talks. She said that the night before they had a big, big, big party. There were a lot of drugs there. There were drug dealers there. She said this was about getting money for drugs. Hmm. She said this is not... But that's what she's saying. So you could listen to the interview and take it for what it's worth. Where was that uh, interview? uh, Something with the word turkey. If you go on YouTube, something turkey. The guy, she calls in and he interviews her. And she gives a lot of information.
1: Interesting. I'm going to check it out. I'm going to check it out. Thank you, Deborah. I appreciate the call.
9: Very interesting. Thank you.
1: Thank you. 800-848-9222. We're going to talk with David Danzis in a moment. But Greg in Ohio has been holding. Hello, Greg.
10: Hi, Bryce. All right. Hey, that that balloon wasn't a balloon; it was a blimp.
1: Ah, that's no moon; it's a space station. No, um,
10: uh, let me let me explain.
1: Yeah,
10: the reason they were investigating that because it had directional control. It came in from the east. When it found out that the cloud cover was over Montana, it went north. Then it went east and did a U turn over Alaska. Then it came back down, and then it went north to Minot. And then when it was discovered, it made a run for the coast.
1: So um, the difference operationally between a blimp and a balloon is that a blimp can be steered, whereas a balloon just kind of floats in whichever way the wind blows?
10: Right. This thing was unique because it it also had altitude control. Because when it did it went high, the the hover that came low got the jet stream, and then it made it run for the coast. It It made it run for the coast overnight when it was discovered. Yeah. Yeah. Well one more thing I want to ask you. Go ahead, Jimmy. You know what we do you know what we do with food stealers?
1: What do we do? What what? Tell me.
10: Well I, we see we had a lunchroom, we had a, we had a refrigerator, and my buddy would bring in his big uh, sub every day for afternoon turn, you know, and we'd go in to eat at lunchtime and the sub would be gone. Somebody would steal it, you know? And so I said, Billy, give me one of them subs and I'll take it home and I'll fix it up. So I took it home and I put my <laughs> dog's poop in it. Put the cheese on it. And we left it in the refrigerator.
1: That is hysterical, Greg. Uh, You know, that was the end
10: of the food stealer after you got that pink sandwich.
1: That's very funny, Greg. Thank you. You know, uh, two quick things, and then we're going to talk to David Danzis. One, um, there are very clear rules around here, which is that the food must be labeled, number one. Number two, and and as such, I am helping, by eating that banana, I am helping to enforce the rules of society, right? Imagine if there were laws on the books that there were no penalties for. Really? Do do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. No penalty. Oh, sure, you're not supposed to speed, but we're not going to give you a ticket. Eh. That's what I'm trying to prevent. Now, you may say I'm a food vigilante. So be it. Issue two. That that story that he just told me, it reminds me – I knew a mob attorney by the name of Charlie Carnesi. He passed away, unfortunately. Great guy. He was a very close friend, and he's re- had a lot of great trials over the years, and I've witnessed many of them. I knew him, obviously, later in life, but he was a wonderful person and a wonderful guy, and I miss him. And um, w- when – I was covering one of the trials that he was the attorney for, and we'd get together – Every day during uh, jury deliberations. Now, there's nothing, nothing to do during jury deliberations, which is my favorite time. Because you don't have, you can just sit around and talk, which is, as you know, my specialty. So I would ask Charlie to tell me all these stories, story after story after story. And he told me this one story. And Charlie was a very good storyteller, much better than I am. And Charlie told me this one story about how he was representing an old school gangster in that was arrested and the gangsters criminal cohorts decided that they wanted to kill him. They, I don't know why, I don't know the circumstances. I don't know who the gangster was. I don't know if they thought he was going to cooperate. That's probably it, but uh, they decided they wanted to kill him. So they came up with a plan to, <laughs> I'm not joking about any of this, to poison this guy's sandwich, to make a nice eggplant Parmesan or a veal Parmesan, maybe a sausage and pepper sandwich and poison it. And have Charlie, the lawyer, bring, bring it to his client unwittingly. Because obviously he's not going to knowingly poison his client. Bring it to his client unwittingly. And then by extension the client would eat the sandwich and he would die. So I said, that's incredible. Did you do it? He said, no, here's what happened. Those guys knew the guy that they were dealing with. So. They knew he was kind of an old-fashioned, old-school Italian gentleman, and they knew that he would offer me half of his sandwich. And being the glutton that I am, they knew me well enough to know I would eat it. So they were willing to kill their friend, but they weren't willing to kill their friend's lawyer. And uh, I'm glad, Greg, in Ohio, I'm glad you only stopped. At, I'm glad you stopped at poop and not something more harsh. The AC report with the great David Danzis on the eve of the Super Bowl of sports betting straight ahead.
2: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Frank This is the A.C. Report.
3: Well, they blew up the chicken man in Philly last
1: night. And they blew up his house, too. Down on the boardwalk, they're ready for a fight. Gonna see what them racket boys can do. Now there's trouble busting in from out of state,
3: and the DA can't get no relief. Gonna be a rumble on the promenade,
1: and the gambling commissioner's hanging on by the skin of his
3: teeth. Everything dies, baby.
7: Well, City.
1: Sunday is the big game and for years this was basically Christmas for bookies. Because for years, outside of Las Vegas, you really couldn't legally bet on sports. That didn't stop anybody from betting on sports. Certainly didn't stop anybody from betting on the Super Bowl. But an interesting thing happened. Chris Christie's sort of gift to the country by having New Jersey push forward with legalized sports betting in a case that was ultimately decided by the Supreme Court has led state after state, including New York, including Maryland, including a lot of other states, to move forward with legalized sports betting. So what does that mean for the sports betting picture now? What does it mean for Atlantic City these days? If you happen to be in any of the uh, casinos, what's the best place to watch and enjoy the game? Here to analyze a few of those issues is the great David Danzis, lead writer for Play NJ and former casino and Atlantic City political reporter at the press of Atlantic City. David, good morning. It's great to talk to you again.
14: Frank always a pleasure and I got to say man it always makes me smile when i hear that the 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 Liam Henson song and and welcome to Atlantic City so Always happy to hear you this early in the morning, well, my friend.
1: Thank you. I, uh, we play the music so you're not so uh, so grouchy about being woken up at uh, at such an <laughs> unruly hour. Um, hey, so in terms of sports betting, which is now pretty much, I think, legal everywhere that we're being heard right now, what has the legalization of sports betting meant for sports betting over uh, you know over the course of the last couple of years?
14: Yeah, I, as As legalized sports betting is spread across the country, you know, we're seeing more and more states uh, recognize the potential for for more tax revenue. Right. And and I don't think you and I have met a politician yet that doesn't like a little more money coming to the state coffers. So uh, it's been embraced, you know, red states, blue states, purple states, you name it. Uh, It seems like everybody's jumping on board for legalized sports betting.
1: Maryland uh, just launched online sports betting in November, two years after voters approved it. And uh, I'm wondering, the states that have implemented online mobile sports betting, there were always a lot of concerns about an uptick in problem gambling and things of that nature. Uh, To the best of your knowledge, has that come to fruition uh, with the ease of online sports betting?
14: So it's, it's a two-sided answer, it's yes and no. Um, in almost every state where we see mobile or online sports betting or, or even online casino go into effect, there's almost an immediate uptick in the, the calls to things like 1-800-PROBLEM-GAMBLER or, or other comparable um, problem gambling uh, networks in, in any legal state. But we also know that some of those calls are coming in from people who don't know how to use their app. Right. Or, or don't know how to get ah. their money out to make a, a withdrawal. Right. So people seem to kind of confuse calling 1-800-GAMBLER with uh, an all inclusive helpline. And that's not really what it is. So after a few months, you know, we start to see those those volumes, those call volumes sort of level out a little bit. Um, But. Yes, absolutely. The ease of online and mobile sports betting and online casino has certainly led to an increase in people experiencing issues with problem gambling. But it's very hard to say definitively whether it's causing any sort of large scale public health crisis at this point
1: in um one of the things that we saw for decades w- since the 70s is that uh, atlantic city essentially had an east coast gambling monopoly and they did very well uh brought in 6 billion dollars a year just in gambling revenue and then that casino gambling monopoly it uh, fell apart. You saw increased legalized casino gambling first in the uh, the Indian casinos and then gradually in states like Pennsylvania and New York and more and more places. All of a sudden, the uh, casino gambling monopoly they had was gone. Then they started doing sports betting, and uh, legalized sports betting provided an incredible revenue stream for the casinos. And now we're seeing all these other states go forward with – legalized sports betting from what you've been able to tell david has the uptick in states legalizing sports betting hurt the bottom line of atlantic city in new jersey
14: no absolutely not and and i want to be a little clear about something and and from the early days of the implementation of legalized sports betting here in new jersey and in atlantic city um you know casino executives have told me you know dave don't expect huge numbers from sports betting in terms of revenue for us. And we've seen that play out since 2018. While we're seeing, you know, billion-dollar months in terms of handle, which is, you know, an industry term for the total amount of money bet, um, you know, and we're seeing huge numbers for revenues, what we're not seeing is a direct correlation to an increase in table game and slot machine win for casinos here in Atlantic City. But what they've always told me is that we're not necessarily interested in, you know, the $10 million a month that we might get from sports betting. Mm. We're interested in the millions of dollars of increased food and beverage sales, of increased hotel room sales, of, you know, retail and entertainment and everything else that goes along with Atlantic City. Sports betting is an additive. Um, it, It really shouldn't be seen as a standalone amenity, although it is. It really has been an additive for Atlantic City casinos, and I think it's really important to keep that in mind when we when we try to understand, you know, why they're charging $60 a seat for a Super Bowl uh, viewing seat this Sunday it's not because they're trying to be greedy. It's because they really don't make as much money off of sports betting as people like Interesting. to believe. Interesting. Yeah, they make a lot of their money on the back end.
1: What, um, if, what are the hot spots, be they in casinos or elsewhere, to watch the big game on Sunday in Atlantic City, for instance?
14: Sure, and I'm, I'm going to try to not be biased because I do have my favorite places in Atlantic City to go. But I'll, I'll obviously mention the big casinos. I mean, if you're going to go watch the Super Bowl this Sunday in Atlantic City, definitely go to Caesars go to Ocean Casino Resort, go to Borgata. Um, those are really the three places where you're going to have the best chance to get in and be comfortable and, and have a place to view the game because at this point, almost all of the casinos' sports books themselves are sold out, and you're not going to be able to just walk in and watch the game. Uh, so I definitely recommend going to one of the bigger places. If you can't get into the casinos, there's great bars around Atlantic City. I mean, Ducktown Tavern, mm. the Irish Pub, you can't go wrong with either one of those, Tennessee Avenue Beer Hall definitely go check out any of those places if you need to go watch the game and you can't get into a casino. So when, when you say
1: the sports book is sold out, now if you go to the you go to any of the casinos that have a nice sports book, and I think they all have them now, just about any day of the week. It's almost like a, a, a fan, God's living room. If God were a sports fan, mm. this is what his living room would look like. There's big screens, all the games are on, there's comfortable couches, there's a bar right over there, and you could go and place your bets. And um, usually you can just walk into there and sit down. On Super Bowl Sunday, are the you have to pay for a spot at that sports book?
14: Yeah, yeah, almost all of them. Um, at Super Bowl, it's, we're talking March Madness. Um, you know, we've seen it for a couple of the NFL playoff games. What happens is these sports books just don't have the, the the unlimited amount of seats to be able to accommodate everybody, so they have to kind of be a little picky, a little choosy. Um, most places range anywhere from fifty to seventy-five dollars per person. And that includes food and beverage, right? You're not just paying for the right to sit there and watch the game. You know, you, you get food and beverage along with that cost. Gotcha. Um, but but at this point, yeah, most of them are sold out.
1: Yeah, it's, it's like New Year's Eve, uh, what restaurants and bars do for New Year's Eve, I guess. Exactly. We may have to start hosting a uh, a Super Bowl Eve party. Maybe we'll do a Pro Bowl party uh, in keeping with our New Year's Eve Eve uh, theme. In terms, of, uh, in terms of Atlantic City itself, I, I saw an article the other day. And if people just tuning, we're talking with David Danzis. Uh, if you want to be kept up on what's happening in the gaming industry or in Atlantic City, uh, follow him on Twitter at ac underscore danzis. D A N Z I S. Great stuff on there. A lot of great stuff. I steal from him. But uh, David, in terms of what's going on in Atlantic City, I, I came across one article that said the casinos when the hotels are still having a problem. Hiring people. How can that be? The economy's back to normal. The stimulus has ended. Why are they still having a tough time
14: finding enough people to work? Wages, Frank. Wages. Um, You know, for a long, long time, the casinos were the only job in this area. I mean, uh, I don't know how familiar some of your guests are with with southern New Jersey and specifically Atlantic County, but there's not much down here other than the casinos and healthcare. That's That's pretty much it. Um, And the casino wages just haven't kept up. And a lot of people just, you know, I, I can't tell you how many people I know that work in casinos that don't just work at one particular casino. They work at two or three. You know, they're a housekeeper at Golden Nugget on the weekends, and and then a housekeeper at Hard Rock four days during the week. And and it's just it's it's been really tough to get people not only to to, to stay committed to the job, but to continue to want to do it when everything from the culture of tipping has changed to sort of people's, I don't know if entitlement is the right word, but people's attitude towards help has certainly changed. Um, you know, I know people who have been bartenders and porters for 30 years, and they tell me, you know, they can't even get guests to smile at them anymore. Everything Oof. seems to to just sort of be expected. Um, and it's just really, it, it's killed morale in the city, and a lot of employees just aren't happy with their jobs the way they used to be. And it's completely changed the Atlantic City experience. And I really hope we can get back to something that resembles what it used to be, because one of, one of Atlantic City's strongest points wasn't just the ocean or the casinos. It was the people that worked in those places, right. and they made it special. And uh, I think we've lost a little bit of that. And I'd certainly like to get it back for, for all of our sake. Uh,
1: no, uh, a- absolutely. Well said. And uh, your point about uh, people working at multiple casinos is right on the money. I, I remember years ago, even, uh, that was the case. I would start a uh, a craps marathon and uh, the craps dealer at, uh, at, at Harrah's, you would discover uh, and see eight or nine hours later, would be then the craps dealer at Bally's. So that was happening even back then. And I- I've certainly observed it with a lot of dealers these days as well. One of the things that was being trumpeted for a while was, oh, look at the numbers, look at how great the numbers are, look at how great they are. About a year ago, you were the first person to kind of break the story, and then a lot of people have emulated you on this. Uh, that the numbers really aren't that great. The numbers are on, only look good for casino earnings because you're including mobile, mobile betting and sports betting in the equation. From what you're seeing now, how are the gaming revenue numbers looking when you include mobile betting and when you don't?
14: Yeah, and again, it's, it's a it's a tale of two cities, right? I mean, we're talking about You mentioned the $6 billion number not too long ago. We're close to that again, right? But but that is in the totality of the industry. That includes retail, casinos, mobile, and sports betting. And that's not the metric that we used in 2006 when we hit that $6 billion Mm -hmm. mark, right? That was purely slots and table games in Atlantic City casinos. So the way we look at the market has changed. The truth of the matter is, Six of the nine Atlantic City casinos are still struggling. And when I say struggling, I I need to be clear. We're not talking about they're they're in in imminent danger of closing their doors tomorrow. We're talking about they're not growing. And when you're in the casino, in the gaming market, and you're not growing, you're essentially dead. Mm. Um, So we, we have a problem here where we have three performers who are clearly outpacing the rest of the market. And then we have six performers who are, who are really struggling and trying to find a niche, and we need to get them healthy again before we can really start saying Atlantic City is back, because it's not, and, and anybody who says otherwise is just not being truthful.
1: The big three that, uh, that are doing well, uh, that's Borgata, Hard Rock, and Ocean.
14: Correct. Yes. Yeah, and
1: um, a lot of great other properties, and it's great to see them investing in restaurants and renovating rooms, and hopefully that uh, that will come around. But I have to say, it's one of the most frustrating things in the world when you visit a casino in the middle of the day and there is one craps table open, and it's so crowded you can't even uh, elbow your way in there. It would be nice if there was enough staff to have maybe two craps tables open, and you could have more people uh, have more people playing. As far as you are concerned, David, what is the best Way to kind of get back to that um, s- culture of the old Atlantic City, where uh, people are where they're not struggling to hire, and it's a better experience for the workers themselves.
14: Oh man, you how much time you got? Um, no, <laughs> well, you just hit on one of them, right? And and one of my biggest pet peeves as a gambler um, has been a rise in minimum table limits and you know nonsense like six fives blackjack and triple zero roulette. I mean, these kinds of things are killing the Atlantic City experience, Frank, and it's all because, you know, corporations now dominate the casino industry where we used to have sort of mom and pop shops, although even that's sort of misleading. But, you know, we had smaller operators here in Atlantic City, and now we've got the large conglomerates, and they're just not as interested in sort of that personal touch. Um, I think they're starting to come around to it. I think they're starting to realize it a little bit more. Um, you know, we do have some some new players in the market. You know, the, the folks that just took over Bally's, you know, they're doing a really good job with trying to have that personal connection. Um, I think the folks over at Ocean are doing a great job with that. Um, Golden Nugget's always been a very, you know, person-to-person casino. That's what we need to get back to, Frank. I mean, if you sit at the craps table and you have a heater and you're walking away with, with you know, five figures worth of chips in your pocket, you used to be able to get a steak dinner in a hotel room. Right. Right. Now you're lucky if they'll go get your valet car. You're,
1: you're, you're exactly, exactly right. Hey, um, what is this? I see that people are not allowed to bring their guns into Atlantic City hotels. Uh, I'm pretty, pretty happy about this because I've seen some pretty unruly players when things go south at that craps table. But what what's the rationale behind no guns in the casino? It's like the Old West.
14: Yeah, this is this is just a direct response uh, to an ongoing legal battle here in the state of New Jersey. Um, I don't want to get too much, too into the weeds here, but the casinos have taken have exercised their right as, as private property owners to exclude firearms on the property. Um, so they put out a statement yesterday in response to what's going on in New Jersey saying, you know, leave your guns in the car, leave your guns at home. Uh, you're not allowed to have them on the casino floor. You're not allowed to have them in the hotel. If you do bring your firearms onto the premises, you will be charged.
1: Uh, finally, David, is there any word on what's happening to what will happen to what was the Atlantic club? And before that, the Atlantic city Hilton, it's a a very nice location. And there's always been a lot of speculation about what's going to end up there. And, uh, at the same time, I know they're in the process of knocking down the old Trump Plaza. I think Carl Icahn owns that property. That is probably the most prime real estate in all of Atlantic city. Is there any indication?
14: in what they might put there. We've been hearing rumblings now for about three years at the Hilton that um, this is going to be turned into like a multi-use complex with condos and shopping and dining. Still haven't seen a whole lot of movement. We keep kind of hearing the same story. Uh, I'll I'll definitely keep you updated if we hear anything change on that front. Um, As far as the plaza, you know, um, the mayor uh, had a big show of it a couple of years ago when they imploded the the actual casino hotel building. The, the parking structure is still there. And so far, Carl Icon and the city have not come to any sort of um, agreement, if you will, on what to do with that property. But I think you hit the nail on the head. For my money, that is the most prime piece of real estate in Atlantic City and possibly on the East Coast.
1: David, it's always a treat to talk with you. Hopefully, we can connect the next time I'm in Atlantic City. Thank you very much.
14: Always a pleasure, my friend. Be well.
1: Thank you. David Danzas, uh, read him at Play NJ. He's the lead. Casino reporter there and a guy that knows his stuff and just sounds great. Big fan. All right. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can do so. 800 848 9222. That's 800 848 9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead.
2: The Other Side of midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
3: out my poems for the few they look at me took to me shook me feeling me from heartache from the pain taking my message from the veins speaking my lesson from the brain seeing the
1: beauty through the hey, up, up, this is The Other Side of Midnight this is Believer by Imagine Dragons um, I can't remember why we wanted to play this but it is a good song it is good If you want to know what kind of music we're playing, join the Facebook group, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters uh, on Facebook. Or just uh, go to Facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. You can also find me on Twitter, at Frank Morano. I retweeted a tweet uh, yesterday morning, and I just wonder... Do public officials not double check before they hit send on their tweet, especially Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, Republican of Colorado, because she was one of the people who was shouting at Biden yesterday, I believe, calling him a liar and so forth. Okay, you know, I appear to be in the minority and thinking that decorum is actually something that's important, but um, she's quoting Biden and saying when schools were closed close quote, dash Biden, right? Meaning she's attributing the quote to Biden. And then she says in her tweet, and I retweeted it, you could see, at Frank Morano, she says, hey, Joe, you closed them. And I'm thinking, how does Lauren Boebert not know that the close, the schools were closed in 2020 before Biden was even president? How could she think in the middle of the State of the Union, and she tweeted this at 9.54 p.m. Eastern, How could she think that Biden closed the schools when he wasn't even president? It just it just it, it underscores to me that we're now in an era where members of the media, politicians and members of the public, they're just so into being first and capitalizing on whatever's happening at the moment and maybe becoming viral with a tweet. And look, I've probably been guilty of this. I'm sure I have that they don't even care about accuracy. Now, that's a simple fact to check. Uh, There are a lot of things you could blame Biden for, but you can't blame him for things that happened before he was president. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on uh, anything that we have uh, covered thus far. My wife and I finished a movie yesterday. It took us uh, two or three sittings. We started it over the weekend. It's called Causeway, uh, which is a drama. Uh, with Jennifer Lawrence, and it uh, was nominated for one award. I believe Brian Tyree Henry is nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Great acting in this film, pretty slow, and I would characterize it as not very entertaining. We both agreed that it was basically two hours' worth of character development and not much of a story. So if you're looking for a good acting movie, check out Causeway. If you're looking for a story, skip it. Till next hour, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Thanks for listening. Hey, coming up in about a uh, half hour, we're going to talk with Brian Kilmeade, New York Times best-selling author and uh, one of the hardest-working people in all of broadcasting. It's always a real treat to be able to talk with Brian, and he's kind enough to join us on a weekly not bi-weekly basis. 800 848 if you want to weigh in on anything we have covered thus far. I was listening uh, the other night, not last night, but the night before, to the Cats at Night show, which is a great show. If you read the interview that I did with All Access, which I shared on my Facebook page at uh, facebook.com slash MoranoFan, they asked me one of the questions. They asked me ten questions, and I answered them. One of the questions was, um... Just to go through my schedule, which was a pretty intimidating thing, because I really had no idea how little time I have for anything else. You know, sometimes, for instance, I'll fantasize about well, well, whatever. I'll 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 save that story for a little later or tomorrow because it's a lengthier a lengthier d- d- discussion. But anyway, I said at five p.m. once my wife finishes her workday, right around there. She'll look after my son so that I can start working on that day's show. And I said I start working on the show while listening to the Cats at Night show. I said it is the only radio show that no matter what I'm doing, I make sure never to miss. And sure enough, and and what I love about it is there's so many interesting people on that show – so many great newsmakers, so many different subject matter expertise experts, so many different political perspectives, uh, different walks of life, and there's so many different odd combinations of people talking with one another. And that was the case on, what's today, Thursday? Tuesday. So that was the case on Tuesday when Alan Dershowitz, who's normally a guest on the show every week, not on a semi-weekly or bi-weekly basis, but every week, and he was talking with the whole panel there. You got uh, John Katzmatidis, Judge Richard Weinberg, Tony Carbonetti, I'm sure a couple of other people. And John asks Alan, is there anything else that you want to say? And, you know, it's funny. I never thought to incorporate this as one of my own questions, but it really is such a clever way to learn new things about people because I can't tell you how often I'm listening to that show and the answer to that question becomes the most interesting part of the interview. That was the case with Alan Dershowitz. I mean, he said a lot of interesting things. But this was the portion of the interview that I was most captivated by because it was stuff that I hadn't heard before. Here's Alan Dershowitz in response to John's question, is there anything else that you want to talk about? Uh, What else are you mad as heck about?
5: Well, I watched the film last night, one of the greatest films I've ever seen. It was called Jacques Cuse. It was a film made by Roman Polanski. I was able to see it because a friend of mine was one of the producers. Americans can't see that film. That film has been banned and censored for all Americans. If you go on YouTube, if you go on any of the things it will say not available in the United States because Americans have canceled Roman Polanski. I don't, I don't like what Roman Polanski did either. But we should have a right to see his films. This is a film about the Dreyfus case. This is a film about false accusations. What could be more important? Finally, I saw it, uh, but I had to see it through a friend. But Americans shouldn't have their films or their music or their books censored because we don't like what the author may have done 30 years ago. So that's something that's really well, been... you
14: can see the original Chuck Hughes. It's from yeah. the 1930s, oh, yeah. Alan.
5: 1921. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it was great it was a meal with... Uh, what was his name? That great George, George
14: uh, Arliss or Paul Muni? Which one of those?
5: Uh, Paul Muni. Paul, Paul Muni, Muni. Okay. That was the one I loved. Yeah. I own an original copy of Jacques Hughes from the original newspaper. One of the few remaining copies. You know, I collect all this stuff. And that's one of my treasures, uh, or an original copy of Jacques Hughes, Emile uh, Zola's uh, defense of... Um, of, of After
1: Now, uh, I thought that was really interesting. I thought it was interesting for a few reasons. One, because I hate any sort of censorship. I want to be able to see everything. Two, because when I looked up that film, and the the English uh, the name for the film is An Officer and a Spy, it is getting rave reviews literally all over the world. And so, uh, it, and I saw that original film about the, and there have been a couple of films about the Dreyfus Affair, but... Uh, I saw that original Dreyfus Affair film with Paul Muni that they were talking about, and I thought it was really interesting. But I've seen a couple of other versions that were interesting as well. And it, it is it is a really interesting story, and I would like to see it as well. So the other thing that I found interesting is Dershowitz's explanation of why people can't see it. If you heard what Dershowitz said, he's been canceled, Roman Polanski who, let me state for the record, I think is probably a rapist and a total creep. Um, I'm not defending Roman Polanski at all. But he said he's been canceled in the United States. And I said, hmm, that doesn't seem right. Because I remember in 2003 at the Academy Awards, because I'm a student of the Academy Awards, not an expert, but a student. I remember 2003, Roman Polanski, who was still a fugitive at the time, Because if you're not up on the Roman Polanski situation, he had uh, had sex with a 13 year old girl, pled guilty to it. And then rather than go to prison, chose to flee. And he's been a fugitive ever since. But he was a fugitive 20 years ago and he won the best director. I think it was best director. Might have been best picture, but I think it was best director. He won the best director Academy Award for The Pianist with Adrian Brody. And I saw The Pianist. It was a great film had to do with the Holocaust and the Nazis, really interesting. And he didn't come to the ceremony, obviously, because if he comes to the United States, he'll get arrested. So Harrison Ford, if I remember correctly, accepted the award on his behalf. And I thought to myself, look, I know we've gone far in some areas with this Me Too movement, but why would he have been able to not only have his film shown 20 years ago – because it's not as if there was nothing about uh, cancel culture 20 years ago and, um, you know, that kind of thing. But now he can't. And so I did a little more research. But this before I could get to the research, Alan Dershowitz hangs up and Judge Weinberg makes an interesting observation that Tony Carbonetti who, if you don't know, was Mayor Giuliani's chief of staff. And I think Tony's kind of like a power player in New York. I don't even know what he does, but he does something that involves putting powerful people together. And he's good on the radio. Certainly he knows a lot about a lot of different things. So Judge Weinberg and Tony Carbonetti are talking about this film, An Officer and a a Spy, or uh, Jacques Hughes, as it's called in French. And this is the conversation.
0: That's really amazing, by the way, that they're suppressing the
14: film. It's one thing about Polanski. you have an opinion about Polanski, but the film is the film. Why
11: won't they let people see the film? Because he raped a teenage girl. Is
0: that an answer? Well, that's yeah, but that my answer.
1: I have daughters. <laughs> that's I have my daughter, answer. I have daughters, too. Wait, you have two daughters? You, you, you don't, don't have get to profit in the United States if you don't and stand you trial one.
17: here. I you have one. one. If he stands trial here, he can profit here.
1: So, um, that made me even more curious. Tony's explanation. Tony is a smart guy, but... I I'm, again, remembering what happened with The Pianist, the 2002 film that won the uh, Academy Award in 2003. Why was, if that's true, what Tony said, why was he able to profit 20 years ago, but now all of a sudden he can't? So I did a little more research. So this film, An Officer and a Spy, immediately, as soon as it w- was released – was getting rave reviews. I mean, over-the-top rave reviews. Similar to what Dershowitz said about it being one of the best films he's ever seen, everyone was saying it. And look, Polanski, rapist, total creep, but there's no doubt about He's a very talented filmmaker. I mean, if you've seen Rosemary's Baby, if you've seen Chinatown, you know uh, what an incredible filmmaker Roman Polanski is, and uh, certainly the pianist. So Polanski attended the Venice Film Festival, when this film was released and this was his first appearance at a major film event since he was expelled from the Academy of motion picture arts and sciences five years ago at the height of the me too movement. And during the festival, the head of the jury stated quote, I don't separate the man from the art. I think that important aspects of the work emerges in the man, a man who commits a crime of this size who was then condemned and the victim considers herself satisfied with the compensation is difficult for me to judge. It is difficult to define what is the right approach we have to take with people who have committed certain acts and were judged for them. I think these questions are part of the debate in our times. This fella also stated she would not um oh no, it was a female. See these European names. Okay, it was a female, not a fella. This woman also stated she would not attend a gala dinner. In support of the film. Polanski's producers. Threatened to pull the film from the festival lineup. And it had nothing to do with the crime that he committed in um, in the 70s with it, uh, with that 13 year old girl. Nothing to do with it. It was another incident. So apparently there were two issues that uh, upset people. With with this particular film, an officer and a spy. One was he compared his own situation, which centers around, uh, you know, him raping someone to the Dreyfus Affair, which is a film about wrongful accusations and so forth. And people did not like that. The other thing is there was an additional controversy involving him. Uh, sexually assaulting or harassing, I'm not sure, someone else, not the 13-year-old girl in the United States. So Polanski fled the United States in 1978 after pleading guilty to having unlawful sex with a 13-year-old girl. He was leading a pleasant life in France for decades until he came back into the global spotlight with that film, An Officer and a Spy, and he scooped the grand jury prize. Shortly after the movie got all these accolades on the film festival circuit, Polanski faced new allegations of sexual misconduct, which he denies. I don't remember these new allegations. There must have been a lot going on at the time. So when he went on to win Best Director at France's César Awards, which is that country's equivalent of the Oscars, there was an industry outcry that prompted a complete overhaul of the leadership of the awards organization – The scandal sparked the birth of France's own Me Too movement, spearheaded by French actor Adèle Hanel, the star of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, who walked out of the Cesar ceremony upon hearing Polanski's name. So no French French financier, producer, or broadcaster has dared touch his new film, The Palace, but um, they're saying while he may not have been canceled on the festival circuit, his films basically are, and he's not able to get American distribution either for an officer in, and a spy or the film that came out after that, the, uh, the Palace. So my question for you is this, 800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222. Do you agree with Alan Dershowitz that you should be able to watch the film? Or do you agree with Tony Carbonetti that, look, this is a rapist? that we should not be able to profit in the United States. Now, the situation is more complicated because I think if it were just that initial incident from 1978, this film would have gotten distribution just the way the pianist did. But it's this new allegation which prompted the French Me Too movement that has made him a newly canceled man. A couple of things to keep in mind here. One, he denies this accusation. Two, um, he is living a free man. He is free as as I am, right? Not in the United States, but abroad. My contention is, 800-848-9222 if you want to weigh in. My contention is you should be able to watch the film. And this film should be distributed in American theaters, or if not in theaters, maybe on demand via digital download. Let people make the decision for themselves if they want to spend $19.99 to watch the film. Why should you have to rely on some, uh, some black market connection to get a copy of this film? If people want to watch the film, they should be able to watch it, just as uh, they made that decision with The Pianist when that was getting all the awards. I have a lot of respect for anybody that makes a decision not to watch the film. Just like a lot of people won't watch Woody Allen films anymore because of a lot of the accusations involving him molesting his daughter. In my view, you have to separate the art from the artist. If someone breaks the law, they should be prosecuted. If someone's a fugitive from justice, they should make an attempt to have that person pay the piper. If someone sexually assaulted or sexually harassed someone else, then that person should pay the piper and pay for whatever penalty, including prison time, is in the country that that happened. But I don't think holding this artwork captive is serving any purpose. Let me make the decision like an adult as to whether I want to see the film or not. What do you think? I thought that was such an interesting discussion, and it's one of the many reasons I, I make sure never to miss that show. I, I want the freedom to determine whether I should watch the film or not, and I'm wondering if you do, too. 800 848 should you be able to watch an officer and a spy in the United States? What do you think and why? 800 848 Rick is in Elmwood Park. Hello, Rick.
13: I uh, want you to send 25% of the proceeds to, like, rape victims a charitable cause.
1: Well, I don't think uh, Roman Polanski is maintaining that he, he didn't, he didn't uh, do anything to this other woman. Uh, that he's maintaining that accusation is, is not accurate. So if he's getting the money, I don't think he's going to volunteer for that. But, uh, but you know, that's, I guess that's his business. Yeah.
13: Anyway, I got a story about censorship. If you want to hear how Al Gore destroyed one of my laptops.
1: Yes, actually that's a pretty good tease. Let's hear it.
13: Okay. Um, I got into um, climate science because I watched Inconvenient Truths and it was full of lies, and I wanted to know the facts. So anyway, I learned all the facts, and I counted over 40 lies in the movie. So I went on uh, Al Gore's Twitter page, and I started debunking the lies one after another with the facts and the data. And by the time I got to the 10th one, My PC went black, and I had expert technicians work on the laptop for two weeks, and they said, somebody gave you a virus that destroyed your PC so bad, your laptop so bad, it's unrecoverable. They tried everything possible, and they couldn't get it to work again. It was gone. And that was, you know, definitely like Al Gore's technicians must have sent a virus to my laptop. And it just killed it instantly.
1: Well, I mean, um, that is interesting, right? And I don't put it past anybody. But why do you think that it was Al Gore's people rather than, say, someone that agrees with Al Gore? Say, like, like a, a very big climate change person.
13: Well, because that amount of technology, I mean, sure, it could be a professional hacker. It could be any professional hacker because they can do that kind of stuff. But... I'm pretty sure Al Gore has his own people. Like, he can't watch his own social media 24 hours a day. So he's got somebody watching that. And chances are, they're prepared for whatever attacks come his way. And, I mean, I was rambling the facts off at, like, machine gun pace. And 10 facts in less than two minutes, and boom.
1: Well, I'll tell you why why I'm skeptical, Rick. And, look, I'm open to anything. But um, the reason I'm skeptical is, one... You know, Al Gore has a pretty large um, platform. You know, because he was vice president, because of his his name recognition, because of that movie, because of everything else. And so, I can't see him with all the people that are uh, saying that climate change is a hoax and stuff. I can't see him choosing. Just to single you out, you know, Rick from Elmwood Park, just because you're tweeting against him. One, because it strikes me as, you know, using a bazooka to blow up an anthill. And two, and I don't mean that to be disparaging at all. It would be the same thing if, uh, if I was tweeting at Al Gore. I think he would just ignore me. But two, what stops you from just continuing to tweet from another laptop? Well, you're fine. Right,
13: because I didn't have another laptop.
1: Well, what about your phone or go to the computer and use the library there or or a friend's phone or a friend's computer?
13: Yeah, well, I could do that. But, you know, it's an inconvenience. Plus, now it costs me whatever that laptop costs me, six or seven hundred dollars.
1: Right. But that's what I'm saying is it strikes me as such a um, such an overreaction when you can just continue, you know, after a little bit of an inconvenience and some cost and he doesn't know your financial situation maybe you know for some people a new phone or a new laptop is is not a lot, is not a big deal but um it strikes me as an unnecessary risk for the gore people to take when you could just as easily just keep tweeting from another device
13: he would just shut it down again
1: have you tried it again
13: no, I haven't tried it again. In fact, I've been banned from Twitter ever since. And even though Elon Musk now bought it, that is the I'm least shocking
1: aspect of that As this of month, this phone call. Month, Ask me if I'm surprised this guy is banned from Twitter. Saying
13: that I didn't want twerking in front of second graders.
1: All right. Well, hopefully, under the Musk regime, you'll be restored soon, Rick. Thank you very much for the call. uh Paul is in Manhattan. Hello, Paul.
16: Hi Frank. Uh, before I get to what I was going to talk about, just what the, what that other guy was just previously talking about, what he's calling what he was talking about is called the dropout, where you just you just re- erase somebody basically, you erase their computer, and it's and it's done either automatically or manually. It's a common thing. I'm well versed in it, and it's a topic. It, you know, it's one of those topics that if you if you put it out there, you'll get a million. Okay, and I'm it. all for it
1: exploring so it. Times. But do you think it was the? I I could see it happening, but I could it see it being No, no, no. All right. Yeah, I understand. I I could see it happening, but I could see it happening by like a, you know, an ultra uh, uh, somebody that's really into climate change activism who sees all the things that he's tweeting to Gore and says, yeah, I'll fix this guy. I'll show him. I'll send him a virus for Gore to care about what Rick in Elmswood Park is doing. I mean, I can't see Gore caring about
16: it. It's it's literally the pressing of a button. It's that's how simple it is, and it could be done just in the spur of the moment.
1: Yeah, if you know of a way that I can start doing that to people, I have a few people I'd like to start doing that to. Paul,
16: you you gonna pay? Uh,
1: how much would it cost?
16: How many people are you talking about? I don't know, A half dozen. Hundred bucks total or each? No, per. No, 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 each. For, no, for half a dozen, six people. Yeah, hundred bucks each. Two minutes, three minutes of work. You just if you if you have their. They are public IPs.
1: All right, email me, Paul. Maybe we'll work something else uh, out.
16: Any, anyhow, about the um, the uh, Alan Dershowitz. Yep. If you want to watch that movie, according to what Alan said, it's very simple. Alan's a very smart guy; he should have known this already. Uh, do you use a VPN? I, I don't, but I have just change just change your location. I would recommend either Iceland or Austria. Right. And you can watch the stream the movie on on yeah on uh, YouTube movies.
1: Yeah, Paul. But my 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 broader um, interest is having a conversation about. Corporate censorship and separating the art from the artist and whether we should have legal access in this country to that picture. I think that we should. 800-848-9222. What do you think? Ozzy is in New Jersey. Hello, Ozzy.
12: Hello, Frank. How are you? I'm well. Um, I appreciate you asking. Also, I Thank want to you. let you know that uh, I think your show is fantastic. It's very, very interesting, thought-provoking and all Thank that.
1: Thank you. That's very nice. There's no accounting yes. for taste, I guess.
12: Yeah, I, I guess so. Now, here's my, my, my feeling. I feel strongly about the whole Alan Dershowitz thing. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with classical music and Richard Wagner. Richard Wagner was a, one of the great musical geniuses of the 19th century. Sure. And he was a virulent anti-Semite. And there was a big um, controversy a few years back where um, his music wouldn't be played in uh, Israel for years and years and years. And there is a, uh, a Jewish conductor daniel barrenboy very famous famous for being married to jacqueline dupre there was a movie about her in any event um there was a controversy about it he fought it and the music was played and very well received for the most part in israel i think it's all got to do with the dumbing down uh theory i think it's very very uh dangerous to avoid the realities of the past um you know, there's a, issues about Picasso, for example, right. the way he treated women. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think we need to separate the person from the art. And I think we limit ourselves by not exposing ourselves to those that are. And let's learn about these people and learn about why they were the were they were and the time uh, that they were alive. Um, so I'm 100 percent against. Any kind of censorship in that, you know, everybody's got a choice. They don't have to listen to it. Right. They don't exactly. have to go watch yeah, it. Yeah,
1: and if people make that decision, I don't have an issue with that, go ahead, that's your decision to make. But don't stop me if I want to make a different decision from, um, from talking about that. And yeah, I'm very familiar with the Wagner uh, debate and the debate about whether people should enjoy Wagner's work. I've discussed this actually privately, I don't think we've discussed it on air, but with uh, Rudy Giuliani, and I know Rudy Giuliani oh. has discussed this on air because he's a big opera fan and he's a big fan of Wagner. And he believes that, um, that it's fine to enjoy the work of Wagner that he's been enjoying his whole life, even uh, while at the same time repudiating his views. And that's, that's pretty similar to my view, Ozzy, Thank you very much for the call. Well said. 800-848-9222. Josh is in Manhattan. Hello, Josh.
16: Yeah, hi, Frank. Um, about your cues, um, you know, I don't know if that VPN trick works because I had this. I tried very hard and I wasn't able to get it that way. Um, but I did get a copy of it. I still have a copy of it that I got by using uh, BitTorrent. Um, but what I wanted to talk about was it's not just that film. It's basically all of Polanski's films. I don't think you can find The Pianist anymore. I know you can't find Rosemary's Baby or Chinatown. No,
1: you, that's not true. You could find Rosemary's Baby. Um, yeah. You know, uh, 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 no way, no way. You got to be able to. Watch. It's on. I, I just checked. It's I on think, Amazon.
16: Uh, I tried. Um, you know, it was a while ago, but maybe I, maybe I did something wrong.
1: I am but, right uh, now watching Rosemary's Baby. I, I, you, it, you are. It, 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 it's on Amazon, Amazon Prime.
16: Okay, that's good. That's good to know. I but know but, I, but you know it.
1: that I think illustrates and and thank you for the call, Josh. I, I got to run, and then we have Brian Kilmeade waiting in the wings. That illustrates the stupidity of this, right? Um. I'm able to watch a I'm watching a Roman Polanski film right now. I see Mia Farrow's name in the credits. In, Rosemary's Baby, nice uh, shot of the New York skyline. I'm able to watch a Roman Polanski film right now. Why can't I make the decision to watch the Roman Polanski film that I want to watch? Makes no sense. It's uh, selective censorship and selective adherence to the moral high ground. Hey, you want to win $1,000? Be the seventh caller to 800-848-9222, and you can play the $1,000 minute. Uh, Call right now, 800-848-9222. And if you are the seventh caller, you'll have an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you can do that, you'll be $1,000 richer. And then you'll be a lot richer in terms of wisdom and entertainment because you'll hear my conversation with Brian Kilmeade. Straight ahead.
2: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
0: Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So, why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio Challenge What You Know About Mental Health at beatthestigma.org. It's the other side
2: of midnight with Frank Morano. Frank
1: This is the New York Doll Personality Crisis. Speaking of personality crises, we will talk with Brian Kilmead in just a moment. But first, let's give somebody a chance to win some money with...
2: The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's
13: your host, Frank. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Let us say
1: hello to Gino in Brooklyn. Hello, Gino. Hey, what's happening, pal? Hey, I'm doing well. So, Gino, I know I know you. Obviously, you've been you've been on the show before, and you've called in before. You know the rules, right? You're ready to go.
15: Yes, sir. Why don't you just give me ten music trivia questions, and we'll end this baby right now. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, you cut me in for half the money, and we'll talk. All right. Um, the timer will begin after I ask the first question. What president was George Washington University named after? George Washington. What fictional whale did Captain Ahab seek revenge on? Moby. You mm, can be more specific. Moby Dick. What McDonald's hamburger features two all-beef patties with special sauce on a sesame seed bun? Big Mac. What state is the Grand Canyon in?
10: Uh, it borders a few, but Arizona.
1: Who was Hillary Clinton's running mate in 2016?
3: Hillary Clinton ran with the dude from uh, Virginia. What was his name? Uh, Oh, man. Um, (sighs) Some pence. Oh,
5: Lord. Oh, man. I wish I could skip questions. (laughs)
3: <laughs> oh come on it's not that uh, long ago give it some thought No it's not that long ago but he was he's not been known here and disappeared since Oh, man. Let me think about this. Hold on. I know it, I'm, I'm in the right state, though. I'm in the right state. All right. Out of time. Sorry.
1: It was Tim right. Kaine. Tim Kaine from hey, Virginia. Who's still, right. <laughs> who's still in the Senate. <laughs> Gino, I'm sorry. Tim Kaine just cost you a $1,000 on question five. All right. Somebody that uh, I know knows a thing or two about presidential running mates, as evidenced by a lot of the books that he's written over the years, is New York Times bestselling author, the co-anchor of Fox and Friends, and nationally syndicated radio talk show host Brian Kilmeade, who's now killing it ratings-wise on the weekends as well on um, Brian Kilmeade's America. Brian, it's great to talk with you. Super Bowl Eve Eve, uh, real, real fun to be able to chat with you uh, just a few days before the big game.
17: Right. I'm going. Uh, I'll be leaving today. So, uh, I mean, next show will be, I'll be in Arizona doing Friday show and Monday show. Awesome. That's going to be fun. Now, you've been to how many Super Bowls? About twenty three, really? Yeah. Wow,
1: that's incredible. Hey, so give me your uh, prediction and your hope to the extent that you have one.
17: Uh, I, I could, you know, I'm not in. I'm into the game, but I, I don't care who wins. Mm-hmm. I just find it hard to believe that the Eagles will lose. I mean, they're by far the best overall roster. I mean, literally one loss, despite losing their starting quarterback for three games, uh, and the way they've looked in the playoffs. Dismantling the Giants and uh, San Francisco lost all quarterbacks, but they just look so solid. <clears throat> so, so that's the that's uh, the Kilmeade smart money prediction. Bet on the Eagles. I just can't see it any other way. And that, and for some reason, it, they like to, uh, the Eagles fans are getting ready to climb poles. That's their biggest worry. <laughs> Why you would climb a pole when you win? I just can't make head, heads or tails of this.
1: You know, the, we were talking before. They have uh, announced that schools are starting two hours later in Philadelphia on Monday, win, lose, or draw. Kansas City schools are starting on time. What do you think of that? Should, uh, should schools be delaying or, or suspending operations? In your
17: city? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's kind of cool. But let, make them stay an extra hour. Uh, I do think it's kind of cool. I mean, you do want to have something to bond your city together, whether it's, you know, the Chiefs or or Eagles. I think it's a a cool moment. So if you can get everybody talking about one thing, I think it's and I think it helps sell the team in the community. The Eagles don't need any sales, neither do uh, the Chiefs, but I'm okay with that. You were all over
1: the State of the Union coverage, uh, working mornings, working middays, clearly not enough for you. You wanted to uh, make sure you were working in the evening as well. You did a panel where you uh, spent some time with some voters. And if people didn't see the panel, you uh, had basically took their their thoughts on the State of the Union address from President Biden. Here was, for instance, conservative voter Madeline Brame during the voters panel.
17: Uh, let's start with you, Madeline. Uh, when you have the majority of Democrats who say the current president, even after that strong midterm from his party, don't want him to run again, what do you say to that?
8: What I say to it is that um, each individual American voter needs to look at their real-life situation, all right, and decide if they are better off than what they were four years ago. Right. Okay? Um, I personally don't feel that he should run again. We need a strong leader. We need someone who is going to go in there and shake things up and rock the boat and clean it from the top to the bottom.
1: So, Brian, I watched the whole thing. I thought it was a great discussion. Anything about the panel discussion and the panel's observations that surprised you?
17: Yeah. I mean, that woman in particular from Manhattan had to move out to Freeport, Long Island, uh, and she said, I've gone from poor to dirt poor. Mm. And uh, great bookers, by the way, uh, far enough, to, to get this story. And I said, what's going on? She goes, I, I, I'm making the same money. Uh, I just can't afford everything. Everything is more expensive. And she is beyond stress. And I was just talking to her in the break. And she said, these people talk. They have nothing to do with us. They say they totally don't get it. And that's the problem. So he gets up there and names all these jobs and said the unemployment rate and talks about inflation is, is beginning to go down. And that makes it seem like you're totally disconnected. You're not listening to me. I'm telling you, I have less money. I, I shop. I walk out with less products. And I uh, I have a harder time making ends meet. And there's just no I, These opportunities are not there for me. And she's trying to explain it. And then she has one son killed by fentanyl. Mm. And another one just says, I'm joining the military. And she had a little army button on. So when the president of the United States just yells out fentanyl in a stat – what was yelled back to them is the border in China as if they don't see it. So if you're that woman in Freeport, Long Island, you don't want to hear, I don't want my kid to die of fentanyl. Her kid's dead already. And where did it come from? Through the border. Why is it coming? Because China's giving the product. The cartels are, are mass producing it. And then they're ferrying it across the border. And then you say that your lack of border policy is the uh, The big problem is republicans don 't want to do reform and don 't like foreigners or or white supremacists. That woman in Freeport looks around and goes, "What are you guys even talking about I, I need to know you know a lot of these people would would find so insidious when you do heroin when you die of cocaine when you have an overdose, those are choices. Mm. A lot of people have no idea there 's fentanyl 's in. What they normally be over-the-counter drugs, but Ritalin or think different things you take for ADD or some type of amphetamine. A lot of people want to just study more, and that's what's wiping out middle class and, uh, and other people just looking for recreational drugs. It's killing them, one and done. No, I mean, more people dying of these drug overdoses
1: every year than died in the entire Vietnam War. It's really it's really just to, to say it's disconcerting is a, a, a tremendous understatement. So what did you think of the speech uh, beyond the substance, which it's clear you found uh, pretty lacking? Uh, what did you think of uh, the delivery and kind of the showmanship aspect of it? A um, couple of things, you
17: know, it it. The the uh, Making it like the House of Commons, probably not a positive development. But I had no problem when they really lost it when they said you're trying to sunset uh, Social Security and Medicare because they watched Paul Ryan and that whole storyline be impossible to catch up to eight years ago with, uh, with Mitt Romney as if Paul Ryan wants to reform entitlements. That means he doesn't like old people. And that was one of the reasons Barack Obama was able to get another four years. And then they took Rick Scott uh, from – Uh, from Florida, and they took his plan that he said we have to reevaluate entitlements, which we all know has to happen. But politically, it's a third rail when Medicare uh, as well as Social Security. And they go, that's your policy. Well, no one signed on to that policy. That's Rick Scott, the businessman, trying to reform things, whether you think it's right or not. Then they have a congressman from Texas who comes out and says we should have a fair tax. Everyone pays 20 percent. And that's not popular, but that was his idea, bringing it forward, trying to balance the budget. They made that the Republican event. And then he doubled and tripled it down. He brought Rick Scott's paperwork with him yesterday in Wisconsin. And I'm sure he's going to bring it up again. But you heard it last night. 27 million people, when he said that, you heard people say it's not true. And then go, okay, okay, it's true. So, okay, it's not true. So let's just say that we're not going to touch it. So now at least those $27 million, everybody who paid the Clips, will know the Republic, where Republicans stand. Did you think
1: the issues that he chose to focus on and the manner in which he chose to focus
17: on, uh, on them was an indication that he is indeed running in 2024? Yes. No question. He sits down with Judy Woodruff of PBS and he basically is running. I mean, there's no way he's not running unless he has some type of physical thing happen. But there's no way he's not running. Then when asked, well, you know, the polls say they don't want you to run. The polls say people think we're on the wrong track. He said (laughs) his court is unbelievable. He just dismissed all polling. And by the way, they're going to cite polls as they always do when they like them. He says that's just 50 people on cell phones getting phone calls. And all of a sudden, that's how people think. That's how, you know, we don't look at the polls anymore. Okay, good luck with that. Let's just see how that goes. Is in some ways the
1: best thing that Biden has going for him internally? Because, as you mentioned, the majority of Democrats would prefer another candidate. But in some ways, is the best thing that Biden has going for him the fact that he beat Trump previously and Trump is currently the leading presidential candidate among Republicans?
17: I mean, that's what he wants. He wants Trump to be the nominee and he's going to beat him again. I'm the only one who can do it and save the world from uh, four more years of Donald Trump. So that's what he has to run on. If Trump – it becomes clear that Trump's not going to get the nomination, there's, there's going to be panic among Democrats. Mm. You know, he does match up with Trump. You know, the, uh, even though head-to-head, uh, the lies, he was able to pull off that debate saying the laptop wasn't his, knowing very well it was all about his business deals and his son. He had no no problem lying, but no one cared about it. Chris Wallace jumped in, saved Joe Biden multiple times. They missed the second debate. The third debate, the cake was baked. Um, and he never had the campaign. So I think they'll panic if it doesn't look like Donald Trump is going to get the nomination. And the problem is, and t- uh, Trump's policy has never been more popular, but Trump doing what he did the other day, I can't back up. What going Taking after a picture DeSantis. Of a 24- yeah. yeah, I mean, come on. That's the January 6th mentality. That's a, well, I lost, so I'm going to blow everybody up. Now, there's nothing wrong with that picture. It probably helps uh, DeSantis get that out early. He was a young teacher teaching in a high school and some people quoted there say it was a picture of me with my teacher. So they're like, are you – and the subtitle was, was he grooming them? So, I mean, that's, that's so asinine. I can't even get my head around it. You know, uh,
1: the the Republican response by Sarah Huckabee Sanders is getting uh, pretty high marks. I do wonder, though, about her infl- her emphasis on cultural issues and so-called culture war issues. A lot of people are comparing it to Pap Buchanan's uh, Republican convention speech in 92. And would she have been better off focusing more on the kind of economic bread and butter issues, uh, the kind of issues that you say voters like Madeline Brame were interested in hearing more about?
17: I don't know, Frank. I, I, I liked it because it is the crazy. I mean, we are talking about should men be transgender, uh, teens be allowed to compete uh, in girls sports? That is a major issue. We just had the Surfing League. Um, Bethany, who lost that arm to a shark, she's like, I'm out. Uh, we have uh, swimmers like Dara Torres was just on our show and others saying, I don't want to swim against transgender women. They're, now they're going to be uh, coming into soccer. Uh, we have a, so this is a big, big issue. And then when you talk about education, it's a huge issue. K-12, uh, 70% of people are engaged, with it, want to take a, evaluate, personally get involved with K-12 education. So I have really no problem with it. There's some of the stuff we're talking about, uh, oil and gas and going green, and that's cultural, but that's practical. So I, I really thought she was a really good mix. I think it was really well written. And, and to me... Eight years, we're going to be talking about this pretty consistently, but in eight years after two years, if she's able to make a difference in that state, and that state needs help edu- in education and the economic factor, and she's got her dad and all these experience, if she's able to turn around that state and get it to go uh, better than Nathan Hutchinson did, is probably going to run for president, too, you're going to be talking about her as like a mini Margaret Thatcher. I mean, mm-hmm. she'll be the same age as Barack Obama. She'll have the Washington experience. She'll have the uh, governor experience. Um, she understands obviously how to handle the press, knows how to handle personal attacks um about her weight and looks with as we know do at the washington Correspondents' dinner has a mom uh, uh you know she 's got in with the Trump people liked by the non-trump people right.
1: no absolutely she'd be very formidable uh, come uh, say 2028 or 2032 no doubt about it hey um in terms of 2024 one of the candidates that's getting a lot of attention now is chris sununu and obviously the fact that he's from new hampshire can't be ignored uh, for whatever you want to put the stock in polling at this point paul had him uh, running third in new hampshire Is there a scenario in which you could see a Governor Sununu pulling off an upset in New Hampshire and maybe getting a a shot in the arm for his presidential candidacy?
17: Listen, uh, I I think I told you this last week. He was in three weeks ago, and we had lunch, me, Martha McCallum, and him. And I've known him for a while. I did a feature with him right before the pandemic, and his dad was a contributor on the show. Hmm. I, he's formidable, and I believe that he more than likely wins New Hampshire. People really? love him there. Yeah. Wow. They love him. Uh, he told me, too, he was invited over to Bunkport, met with Bush 43. He so said he didn't really know them too well, knew his dad well, and they spent hours together talking about a possible campaign. He's already taken on DeSantis, so I thought DeSantis should stop with Disney, stop with the woke stuff. That's not your job as governor. He also thought that— You know, he said some things about DeSantis impersonability. He said, I like Trump, but there's no way he can win. So uh, I don't think he should run. And he said, I will make sure that Republicans get the right candidate because whether it's me or somebody else, because we can't lose again. And then he started talking about his business background, what got him into it, what is it like, how he talks to people. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, he's not an egomaniac. He's like, I would prefer a better candidate than me. But right now. He's really considering it, wow. and'll I'll use his I'll, I'll fill in the blank because he thinks he is pretty solid. Uh, it's going to be interesting to watch. hey who paid for that lunch? Believe it or not, we did Dutch because he cannot pay for our lunch, and I can't pay for his uh, okay,
1: well if, yeah, yeah,
17: I mean it was kind of weird. I go, listen, you're right here in New York, and then we're hanging out afterwards, and he goes, "Where are you going now? I gotta, I, gotta, I go, I gotta to do, do the show." Uh, the weekend show I have to do a pre-tape. He goes, Who are you doing? I go, Rob Schneider. He said, Can I come? I'd love he goes, I'd love to meet him. <laughs> so I go, okay. You know, he's a big guy too. So Rob is about five four and he comes in. He's I go, Rob, this is governor of uh, New Hampshire. And he Rob said, Okay. And they hit it off in the green room.
1: That is uh that is really something. That's funny. Hey what's coming up on Fox and Friends, what's coming up on radio?
17: Um I mean we're gonna talk about uh, the hearings yesterday on Twitter Uh, What was said, what wasn't said. I think it's important. The president of the United States finally sat down and did an interview. He was barely awake, but he said something stunning. First, he said, I talked to President Xi and they said, you talked to him since the balloon is. He goes, no, I've talked to him before. It's not a big deal. He goes, well, they're saying that they want their balloon back and this is a big deal. He's like, I don't think so. What kind of answer is that? Uh, I'll talk about that. Also, Hunter Biden. Now we have uh, an email showing that he was setting up an office with a Chinese interpreter with another partnership to to, do uh, equity, set up equity deals in China. That is a new uh, revelation, the latest on the on the Super Bowl, too. So we'll uh, discuss all those things um, uh, coming up.
1: Outstanding. Brian, it is always a treat to talk with you. Uh, You make all of our Thursdays, even though it's dark out, you make
17: it brighter. Yeah, Frank, I think we helped the world, you and I together. Well, we, made the, we made the world a better place.
1: I, I think you're probably half right. Okay, uh, thank you, Brian Kilmeade. <laughs> Go him. Uh, check him out, Fox & Friends. Listen to him on his nationally syndicated radio show. And now see him on the, on the weekend where he's uh, killing it as well. Uh, we'll do 15 seconds of fame in a moment. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead.
2: The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight.
1: Thanks to the late, great Andrew Bonafide uh, for this theme song. He passed away recently after a battle with Parkinson's, and uh, we're wishing him and his family the the best. If anybody in his family is listening, I'd love to uh, get in touch with you. Please email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That goes for anybody. Anybody can email me there. I spend most of my day trying to catch up with email and text now. I'm going to spend most of the next couple hours uh, dealing with all these text messages. I don't know if everybody that works odd hours has this same situation, but I certainly do. All right. Hey, you know, I am a believer in synchronicity. I really am, because who was the name that I mentioned when I said I was looking at the credits in Rosemary's Baby? Mia Farrow. Do you know whose birthday it is today? And I did not know this before 40 seconds ago. Mia Farrow. What are the chances? that I would mention Mia Farrow literally um, 20 minutes before announcing that it was her birthday. Also, Judith Light's birthday as well. I did not mention her, so there's that. All right. Um, Do want to wish a happy birthday to my stepmother, Elizabeth. Unfortunately, none of her songs got pick today we we're not able to get the rights in time as well as to joe borelli's mother diane borelli who is a wonderful lady and james parziali who married my friend brian silverstein in spite of the fact that i'm a minister in the universal life church brian still chose to have james marry him rather than me uh i have a feeling that's because brian has seen me perform ceremonies at uh, other people's weddings before uh but James is part of our fan corner over at NYCHA. NYCHA, and maybe this is why they can't get anything done, they apparently just sit around all day and talk about how much they enjoy this show. That's what's going on at NYCHA. All right, without further ado, it's time for...
2: The Other Side of Midnight. This is
13: 15 Seconds of fate. Mike! Hey, Frank. Uh, last week I heard you talk about Kaleidoscope on Netflix. I worked on Kaleidoscope last year, so uh, after I heard you mention it, I wrote an email to the show's creator. I have some contact info. I'm going to send you an email
0: with it if you want to get an interview with them.
1: Please do. And only one more. Anthony. How
0: are you doing, Frank? I really believe the migrants will be weaponized and there's going to be an all-out war with China.
10: That's just my conspiracy theory. All right. well, hey,
1: so, we'll see. Anthony, thank you. Me too. Thank you very much. Hey, I'm sorry we wouldn't have time for more calls today. We'll, we'll do it tomorrow. Frank Morano. good day.